1: Dr. Jason Fung, New York Times bestselling author, The Obesity Code. This distinction between chronic caloric restriction and fasting, um, that I find really interesting. And let us, for the sake of this discussion, assume that we have a person who is willing to endure an unlimited amount of suffering. Um, and you even you've talked a lot about the book Unbroken that you read about World War II um people in Japanese concentration camps, and they were literally being starved. And obviously all of them got lean. So, what I want to understand is okay, fasting seems to have all these tremendous benefits. Chronic caloric restriction has some, but also has like this really damaging psychological component. If there was no damaging psychological component, would they be equal? Or is there still some difference
2: it all depends on how you do the caloric restriction so because it's not just about the calories it's about the hormones right so you have to sort of take it not to sort of this two compartment problem you have to take it to like a three compartment problem right there's what's coming in there's what's stored and there's what's being used OK, so most people only think of sort of the two compartments and then the storage is sort of left over. That's not the way the body works. If insulin is high, your body is going to store calories. Remember, insulin is a nutrient sensor. It tells your body that, hey, energy is coming in. You're eating. You need to store some of this. Right. So, so you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner. Could you get somebody on a low calorie diet?
1: Like if you were on 700 calories a day, but I gave you insulin, could I make you fat?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Whoa. Because think about it this way. If you have insulin, your body uh, – and so if you think about it physiologically, if you have insulin, your body goes into a storage mode because it's a hormone. Insulin is a hormone. It tells your body food is coming in. And even if you don't give food, if you just give insulin, you're going to switch your body into this mode where it thinks that food is coming in. So it's going to store energy. So imagine that, for example, you are a coal you know, coal uh, plants, right? The power plant. You get 2,000 tons of coal coming in and you burn 2,000 tons of coal. That's fine. But you have a storage compartment too. So if you're, you know, if you do a thought experiment, say say you have 2,000 tons of coal coming in, but you divert the whole thing over to, uh, or 1,000 tons of coal into storage, well, you only have 1,000 left. So you're going to feel tired and cold and hungry. And you're going to get fat at the same time. Right? That's what's gonna happen. But it's because of the way that you've diverted off the energy. So think about it from a human body standpoint. Suppose you have two thousand calories coming in, two thousand calories going out. Now you artificially inject insulin. Well, you shuttle a thousand calories immediately into body fat and you have a thousand calories left to burn. Well, what's gonna happen? You're 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 Body heat generation is going to go down, your heart rate is going to slow, you're going to feel tired, you're going to feel hungry because you want to get more energy, right? That's the signal for you to get more energy so that you can get more, you can burn more. Guess what? That's exactly what happens when you go on a chronic calorie-restricted diet. And the the point is that if you do it correctly and you you correct that insulin part of things. So that none of it's going into storage, and you can't do that with chronic calorie restriction. you certainly can, but you have to know that you have to do it properly, like cutting out processed foods, cutting out refined carbohydrates, that kind of thing. But it all depends on that sort of that sort of toggle in the middle that says, how much goes here, how much goes here, insulin. What it does is it tells your body to store fat, but it also turns off fat burning. Remember, fat is purely a store of energy; it's a store of calories. So you're immediately shuttling all your energy into storage, and you have nothing left. So say you take uh, seven hundred calories, but you're pumping people full of insulin. So that energy is going to go into into uh, storage, and seven hundred is probably the lower limit of what you can really do, but. Your body would then try to subsist on, say, five 600 calories of energy. You'd get really hungry because you're, you're, you've got no energy coming in. You probably wouldn't be able to last very long, but you could still gain weight. There was a great experiment a few years ago where they actually took P, type 2 diabetics and they gave them a lot of insulin. So They went from zero uh, units a day to 100 units a day over a span of six months, which is a lot, and they dropped the number of calories that they ate by 300 okay so they're taking insulin but they're eating less 700 300 calories a day less so over the span of six months on average that group gained 20 pounds 20 pounds by eating 300 calories a day less why because so let's take an example you're eating 2000 calories you go down to 1700 But the insulin is shuttling 700 of that immediately off to storage. So you're gaining body fat. Now, your body can only burn 1,000 calories a day. So you feel like crap, you feel tired, you feel hungry, and you're still gaining weight. And guess what? If you do it wrong, which is constantly snacking and eating, cutting out all the dietary fat and eating all refined carbohydrates, which remember is almost precisely what we told people to do in the 80s and 90s.
1: Oh, I remember it. Well, Yeah, actually,
2: (laughs) I had a tub of licorice
1: because it was fat free and I would just eat it and eat it. I'm like, it's fat free.
2: What's happening? Why am I getting fat?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a very confusing time. It
2: it makes perfect sense from like, because, but you have to think of that additional step. That is what is the body actually doing? It's this sort of flip, uh, this switch. So when you eat, you're storing body fat. When you don't eat, when insulin is going down, you're going to burn body fat. You're actually going to – you can't burn body fat if insulin is high. It technically, we say it inhibits lipolysis.
1: Let's ask then the reverse question. So I fully accept that all food is a signaling molecule that's triggering a, some cascade of hormones. I know what to do if I want to store a lot of fat. I'm going to eat a lot of processed carbohydrates that are going to remove all my society mechanisms and it's going to spike my blood glucose like crazy. My body's going to pump a bunch of insulin to make sure that that gets pulled out of the bloodstream. I'm going to get fat. Okay. Is there a diet that's optimized on the exact opposite side where I'm taking in a very um, satiating amount of calories, but it's dropping my insulin or failing to trigger my insulin is maybe the right way to think of it. Um and therefore I'm eating maybe more than your average bear, but I'm actually getting leaner.
2: Yeah, there's there's certainly lots of them. Uh there and, and the the principles are much the same. One is you want to avoid sugar, because sugar, the way that we process fructose is sort of particularly bad. And that's why sugar is particularly fattening, really. And that's that's true if you're a bear. You're eating a lot of ripe berries and stuff because you're trying to gain fat. Um, and it's also true, as anybody knows, if you're eating a lot of cookies and brownies, you're probably going to gain weight. The um, The other thing is you can't eat all the time because, again, it's a cycle between feeding and fasting. That's what we're supposed to do. If you don't give your body time to burn off all those calories that it's taken in, which means the fasting period, you're gonna overall gain weight. It's like a one-way valve. If you go in but don't come out, eventually everything just gets bigger. Same thing. That energy cannot come out if your insulin levels are high. That's just the way it's designed. And it's sort of like you know if if you see a tanker you know, those tanker trucks on the side of the the road. Sometimes uh, you think, oh, they'll never run out of fuel because they have all this fuel. But they do run out of fuel, of course, because you can't access that fuel that's in that big container. Same thing with your body fat, right? It's locked away. If you do not lower your insulin levels, you will never have access to those stores of energy. Once you lower it, Hey, all that energy just comes flowing in, and and for people who are who are on long who have done longer fasts, and this is what's so interesting about the whole process when you actually do it is that the hunger starts to go down significantly the psychological hunger goes up because people are like oh i really want to eat that but the physical hunger actually tends to go down meaning measured by
1: things like ghrelin or whatever
2: ghrelin so hunger hormones and so on and and people you talk to people and uh, you know i've done it live i know lots of people have done it and they they all say the same thing by day three Therefore, the hunger is almost completely disappeared. And why is that? Well, because you're fueling yourself from your body fat stores, and therefore you actually have no no need to eat. It's 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 an interesting process which people never think about, but it's completely physiologic.
1: Yeah. So I've done my longest fast was five days. Um, I've done many fasts that are twenty four hours to seventy two hours I find seventy two while not pleasant. I find it relatively easy. I don't decline in performance, but day four and five I do, and I'm super curious to know um if I am doing something wrong like am I supposed to be supplementing and and I'm talking a true water only fast um should I be eating salt? Should I be taking magnesium? Like what? what is it?
2: Yeah, everybody is different. Certainly some people, salt is probably the main thing people get into trouble with because we're on a relatively high salt diet and then to go to a, a sort of zero, which is water only, zero salt is a bit of a transition sometimes. So some people find that their pressure, blood pressure goes low um, and uh, that that makes them not feel so good. So a lot of people have found better from taking salt, either salt in water or just a salt uh, like a, under their tongue even. Uh, Magnesium is another one that tend that to low and some people find it helpful to supplement there as well. The other things that uh, people find uh, useful is to take some broth, for example, which is going to give you – it's not a true fast. None of these I was going to say that. sounds um, like cheating to me. Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of like um, – I call them variants because they're not, the water only fast is really a true fast. Um, but you can get a lot of the benefits by taking some of these other things and it makes it easier. So it's a sort of a trade-off. It's sort of like bulletproof coffee, which is of course not fasting, but it's a very, very pure sort of fat and therefore it's going to provide a lot of satiety and then let you go through the day. Maybe it allows you to go long. And overall, you might, wind up positive in terms of uh weight loss and so on so lots of people certainly have found that useful not everybody um but certainly it's it's that but water only fast can be more difficult because of the associated electrolyte uh problems your body is supposed to handle it but it doesn't always sure
1: so if we're looking at longevity and we want to prolong life as much as possible and anti-cancer. In fact, this might be the perfect transition into your uh, brilliant synthesis of what's going on from cancer paradigm 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0. I found that absolutely fascinating in your new book, Cancer Code. It was subtle and yet changes everything. And if you can just like give a quick sort of thesis on that one, two, three thing, I think that really helped people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who made it up. I just was the one to sort of explain it sort of in an accessible way. And honestly, it's, it's the most fascinating story in medicine today, I think is cancer because it's, undergone this tremendous change in the last sort of 10, 20 years, and no one even talks about it. And what I talk about is sort of these modern paradigms of cancer. So the way that we look at cancer, and the reason they're important is because they determine what sort of treatments we use. So the first sort of modern paradigm of cancer is sort of this cancer is a cell that grows too much. So you have breast cancer for example you have a breast cell now something happens to that normal breast cell okay so it starts off as a normal cell but somehow mutates into this breast cancer cell or this lung cancer cell and this lung cancer cell then grows and grows and grows and then it moves around it spreads or this is called metastasis then you die so the first paradigm is hey this is a cell that grows too much so therefore our treatments are actually ways to kill cells and that's the sort of core of modern oncology is to cut it out which is surgery you can burn it with radiation or you can poison it with chemotherapy chemotherapy is really nothing more than a selective toxin it kills some cells faster than it kills another cell so that's why you have these horrific side effects their hair falls out they nauseated all the stuff you think about with chemotherapy is because the idea of chemotherapy is to kill the cancer slightly faster than you kill the patient that's really it it's a selective toxin but that's the paradigm and it makes sense from that you know because if it's if it's growing too much then kill it that's basically it now that reached its limits probably by the 60s and by then we were talking about genetics so everybody started to look at genetics and then that's the sort of next huge paradigm shift is that we were trying to understand at a deeper level, Not we weren't saying that cancer cells didn't grow. The question we're trying to ask is, why are they growing? And so we said, well, the answer now is that they have genetic mutations that lets them grow too much. And sure enough, when we looked, we found these oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes, so genes that control growth. And when this cell uh, gets a mutation in one of these critical genes, then it would grow too much, and that made perfect sense. So the point of of um, something like lung cancer and smoking, because we know smoking for uh, you know clearly causes lung cancer, smoking is not a targeted mutation device. It's very nonspecific. You're just creating damage all over the place. So what they said was that this is a random genetic mutation. So you're just creating damage in the genome. And if you're damaging a lot, you're getting a lot of chances to hit this critical growth gene area, and it's going to let cells grow. So, this was the, the, the genetic paradigm, which really has dominated cancer medicine for the last 50 years. And so, instead of trying to kill cells, this led to new treatments. And instead of trying to kill cells, we we're trying to correct the genes that controlled it. And the first few Drugs of the sort of genetic paradigm were just amazing. So by the 2000s, we were like, we are going to cure cancer. So we did this whole uh, human genome project. We said, all we need to do is map out all the genes, look at the cancers, map out those genes, and see what's different. We're going to find one or two genetic mutations. We're going to find a drug to cure that one or two genetic mutations. Boom. Boom. We're going to cure cancer. And that was really what we thought at the time. It was a time of incredible promise. But it didn't work. That was, like, if you look at the number of genetic treatments of cancer that really made a difference, you're talking maybe five, right in the last 40 years five really good drugs that's not a lot and that's a long way from curing cancer and the problem is when we went back so they did the human genome project then they did this cancer genome atlas where they mapped out all these genes they took 30,000 cancers mapped out the genes and said what are the one or two critical genetic mutations they didn't find one or two each cancer had like 50 or 100 genetic mutations. And and it was crazy because if you had a cancer clinic where one patient had lung cancer, so patient A had lung cancer, patient B had lung cancer, patient A's lung cancer had 50 mutations, patient B had 50 mutations, completely different mutations. So how are you going to treat this? You can't get 50 drugs for patient A and 50 completely new drugs for patient B. It's just impossible, and that's why cancer... Treatment just sort of slowed to an absolute crawl. It was just, uh, you know, a huge amount of disappointment. Um, and uh, that sort of spelled the end. It wasn't a random genetic mutation. So it wasn't that genes weren't mutated. It was what is driving these mutations, and that sort of spawned this whole next paradigm shift to cancer paradigm three, which so few people people talk about, and I don't understand why, because I I find it endlessly fascinating. And what we were trying to do, we weren't trying to uh, invalidate that these genetic mutations, because clearly these genes had mutations, what we're trying to understand was, once again, try and get to that one level deeper of why. Why are these genes mutating? And the totally fascinating answer that they came up with is that it was an evolutionary process, not a forward-moving evolutionary process. It was a backwards evolutionary process towards a more primitive form of our cell, which was there from evolution. And what's fascinating is that if you look at pathologists, like the way that people who look under the, the, the microscope at cells, that is exactly how they describe cancer cells. Primitive, uh, undifferentiated.
1: You've like, got to use, you use a, an analogy or a metaphor in the book about a bear and a tutu that I thought, oh, oh. my God, <laughs> like it lets you conceptualize what this is so perfectly. Will you walk people through that?
2: Yeah, and the point is that the cancer is actually a reversion to a more primitive form of the cell. And it's sort of like if you have a wild bear, you can raise it and teach it to dance and wear a tutu. But it's still a wild animal. So if you provoke it, it'll still kill you. Like it'll still wear a tutu, but it'll still kill you. So it reverts to being that wild animal. And our cells are very much like that. So we came from unicellular organisms. So all of us sort of evolved from small bacteria and so on, fungi and so on. And under the right conditions, these cells actually undergo an evolutionary process back towards this more survivalist sort of primitive cell, a single-celled organism Its primary mandate is to compete with other cells, as opposed to a multicellular organism, which its mandate is cooperation. And they are fundamentally against each other. As we move from cellular competition to cellular cooperation, we had to put on all these instructions on top, these genetic instructions to suppress all these competitive urges. When you cause genetic damage and strip away, you damage all these sort of controlling layers. What shines through is that competitive nature. And then the cells, those cancer cells actually behave exactly like unicellular organisms. And that's fascinating, again, because our own immune system has actually identified these cells as foreign cells. Like, there are, you know, immune cells in our body that identify sort of self, uh, our own cells versus other cells, so you avoid friendly fire. And cancer cells are actually identified intrinsically without being having seen them ever before. Your own body will identify these as foreign cells and destroy them. And that's really the reason why we don't have cancer sort of uh, uh, with 99% of the population. Because when you suppress the immune system, of course, you increase your risk significantly of developing these cancers, because it's our immune system, which is playing that anti-cancer role. So what you're trying to do is weed out. So our body has these very efficient anti-cancer mechanisms, where we go around and we're hunting down these sort of You know, anarchists and stuff. Trying to these people who are not going to follow the rules, who are who are competitors, not cooperators. We try and hunt those down and we kill them so that we stay cancer free. It's only at the end of you know, only with time. Uh, when stuff falls through, or with chronic damage, such as with lung, uh, lung cancer, for example, with smoking, that, that you're, you're damaging the genome and those controlling organisms and allowing it to shine through, which is called an activism, which explains a huge amount. Like that, this theory just explains so much about cancer. Because if, if you think about, say, let's take lung cancer again, so you have 50 mutations. Uh, in patient A, 50 different mutations in cancer. In in patient B, but their lung cancers look exactly the same under the microscope. How does that happen? Like if you have a hundred mutations, your cell should look completely different than this other guy's cell. Yet they look precisely the same under the microscope. It's because it was the original sort of cell. You're simply stripping stuff away. You're not adding mutations on. You're actually stripping those away. And what's fascinating is that the genetic So all this genetic stuff that we've done, when you look at the mutations of cancer, they're all concentrated in this area, which is the the difference between unicellular and multicellular organisms. So they did these studies where they take all the genes and they say, let's rank them by evolutionary age. So these are the ancient genes. These are the recent genes. And they put them on. And then they say, where are the cancer mutations. and They're all clustered right around the point between unicellular and multicellular <laughs> organisms. I'm like, that is so interesting. So then, of course, the reason it's important is because now you have, if this is an evolutionary problem, if these are actually unicellular organisms, well, now we actually have ways to fight these unicellular organisms, and that's our immune system. And that's led to this sort of explosion and in interest in immunotherapy, because we 're not trying to kill cells with immunotherapy're not trying to um, we 're not trying to fix genetic mutations what we 're trying to do is treat these cancers like a foreign species like an invasive foreign species and be able to identify them and also bolster our own immune system to attack them but now you 're getting a totally different paradigm because you're, you're, the concept of what this disease is it's an evolutionary disease which requires immune system to fight it because that's our own defenses that's fascinating like that's a totally different paradigm And such an interesting uh, way to look at it. And it's going to lead to all these new treatments. So in the book, I talk about immunotherapy. We talk about the abscopal effect, which is how radiation plus immunotherapy may actually help uh, unearth these things. We talk about adaptive therapy where perhaps you don't have to give maximally tolerated doses of chemotherapy because you may not need it. It may be more effective to use smaller doses. All stems from the understanding of the evolutionary paradigm of cancer, as opposed to the genetic paradigm of cancer, where you would never be able to understand why these treatments that are coming up now are going to be effective.
1: Man, this this is really feels and you talk about sort of the hope this brings in the book, and it really does feel hopeful, you know, because if you've pursued something to a dead end, it's like until you have another path to go down, it's a pretty ugly place to be. (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that you outlined in the book that I thought was really enlightening is what it is exactly. The, you talk about the seed in the soil. So what is it about our modern life that creates this soil that stresses the cell just enough that it is like sort of in scramble mode of, whoa, I have to, I'm constantly looking for this new mutation or stack of mutations that's going to allow me some path through this cigarette smoke, this dietary problem, this whatever. um, If you can walk people through what we've sort of done to the soil. And please, if you can mention the, when you talked about the bomb in in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how they were expecting a certain cancer rate, but they didn't get it. And why that is, I thought that's so interesting.
2: Yeah, I thought thought so too. Uh, Thanks. Um, This concept is that you need both genetics as well as the environment. like Both are important. I'm not saying one is more important, but you have to have a seed, which is obviously all the genetic material that you need to become a plant, for example. But you have to plant it in the right soil. So you take a seed, you put it in the desert, it doesn't grow. You put a seed, put it in proper soil, and give it water, it grows. So cancer, um, the seed is there in every single one of our cells. in Not just us, but every animal, practically, that we know has that seed of cancer, because cancer, of course, is our sort of genetic uh, ancestor the, that was the unicellular organism from way, way, way back so that's that, that yeah, exactly the selfish sort of unicellular organism, but that seed of cancer is there, luckily, if we prevent it from growing by using proper soil, we can actually prevent it and you, you look at these things that cause um, you know, cause cancer they 're called carcinogens. It uh, turns out our diet is one of the biggest ones. So other than tobacco smoke, diet is sort of way up there. And when you look at carcinogens, they, there's a specific sort of uh, thing They have to be chronic and they have to be sort of sublethally damaging, which is the point about Hiroshima. That is, radiation we know causes cancer, for sure. So when they dropped the atomic bomb, they thought, man, we're going to get a lot of cancers coming down the pipes. But it was a single large dose of radiation, not a chronic low dose of radiation, which does cause a lot of cancer. So they did these atomic, uh, they, they they did these studies where they followed people for for years and years, and there was a little bit of extra cancer, but like on 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 average, way less. So when they estimate how many months of you know months or years of life lost, it was like two months, something like Whoa. that. So people, these people were living like 82 years, and they estimate that 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 atomic radiation maybe cost them like two months of, of life. Way less. Because we are thinking that these people are going to get, you know, cancers at age twenty sort of thing. And that didn't happen because it wasn't this chronic thing. And that the reason it has to be chronic is that cancer is an evolutionary process. If you do not have chronic selection pressure, you don't get this change. If you just have because one the change and then of done, the
1: mutations and you need they're going to yeah. be random and they need to occur over time
2: they have to occur continuously because that's the way that selection pressure works in an evolution in a, in a population of cells that is if you if you select for certain cells and do it once that's not going to be that effective uh, if you keep selecting for those cells, like you only take the the, 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 the cells that are sort of survivalist, which are the, the sort of more primitive cells, then you, over time, you're going to select the population that's going to have more of those sort of survivalist cells. If you have a single event, there's no further selection pressure. That is, uh, if you look at you know, if you look at um, evolution of species, it's the same thing. You can't simply have one event. It has to be a continuous selection pressure that produces that change. And that's why it has to be a chronic thing. So tobacco smoking, for example, you look at viruses. So if you have a single terrible virus, like hepatitis A, which causes fulminant hepatic failure, it kills you, but it doesn't give you cancer. As opposed to hepatitis B, which is a chronic virus, it doesn't kill you, but it certainly does give you cancer. H. pylori in the stomach, for example, a very low-grade chronic infection is what gives you cancer, not a single sort of fulminant episode of, of inflammation. That doesn't give you cancer. So, um, you know, all of these, these sort of things, UV light and so on, they're all chronic damage. And that's part of that soil. And diet plays a huge role. And the promise, of course, is that if you look at Traditional populations, like when they looked at uh, populations that lived very simply, so very low sugar, very natural foods, they weren't eating all the time, very little obesity. So people in Africa that they, they had studied, Dennis Burkett in the 50s and 60s, and then in the Inuit people, which uh, and live in the far north, for example, uh, they used to send these expeditions up to the Arctic Circle to find why these, these native peoples, these Inuit, were immune to cancer. Then of course they became civilized, we, we gave them uh, you know, sugar, we gave them white flour because they didn't go bad. Then they got all the same cancers. Turns out they weren't immune at all. It was their environment, it was the soil that was so important. But the promise is that if you can fix that soil, that means you could actually overcome the genetics. Not in all cases but in many cases, especially of these obesity-associated cancers, the breast cancer, colorectal, and so on. And that's the sort of really important thing and the sort of take-home message for a lot of people is that the diet actually plays a massive role. And by understanding it, perhaps you can reduce your risk of cancer, and that's where fasting, as a way to control your weight, as a way to control type 2 diabetes, which is a risk factor, as a, um, those are going to lower the risk factor for obesity, which is a big risk factor for those obesity associated cancers. But it's your lifestyle that's going to play a big role, not necessarily some drug that's or anything like that. So it's all in your own hands. It's amazing. That, that
1: is truly amazing. Now, as one sort of final point on this, is, is the chronic stressor, is that simply being tipped into growth mode? Or is it inflammation? Coupled with the fact that we're tipped into growth mode, like what is it specifically about our diet that's causing this perfect soil for mutations over time um, that leads to cancer?
2: I think there. I think both are are correct. So if you have uh, chronic hyperinsulinemia, insulin is a very powerful growth factor. Uh, inflammation as a cause of chronic damage in itself will cause. Cancer. So you look at a disease such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis. These are called uh, the so-called inflammatory bowel diseases. There's this chronic inflammation in the bowel, and what you get is a super high risk of cancer down the down the line. So uh, both inflammation and uh, hyperinsulinemia and obesity, all of them are risk factors. And and this is the important thing: is that there's a lot of different things that can contribute to the risk of cancer. It's not just that if one is right, then the other is wrong. I mean, both are correct. So if you eat foods that are highly inflammatory, and a lot of people feel that, for example, omega-6 seed oils perhaps are in, in these big doses that we take, perhaps those are highly inflammatory, that, even if it doesn't cause obesity, could be a factor because we know inflammation, chronic inflammation, can certainly do that. So both can be very important. Dr. Alan Goldhammer, founder, True
1: North Health Center.
3: We recommend, there's two types of fasting. There's, there's short-term intermittent fasting, which we recommend people do every day. That everybody fast every day for between 12 and 16 hours, depending on what your target is. And that means that you don't eat at least three hours before you go to sleep hopefully going to sleep at a reasonable hour. And so that gives you 12 to 16 hours of fasting and 8-hour feeding window. We recommend that that in that 8-hour feeding window that the you know whole natural food diet that you eat excludes all the chemicals and the processed foods and the other stuff. And in doing that, you get the quantity and quality of nutrients you need and you give yourself a 16-hour per period of fasting every day. And cumulatively, that's thought to induce... Changes and, and stimulate factors that, are, that promote healing. It also helps minimize overeating. And so, you know, the net effect of that intermittent fasting, which virtually everybody can do safely on their own, is something we recommend. And then periodically, we recommend people take a longer period of time to do water only fasting. In our clinic, we fast people from five to 40 days. Whoa. And so, typically, fasts are two, three, four weeks of time. That needs to be done in a medical setting. Is that only for people that are income. obese? No. No, not at all. In fact, most of our patients, uh, it's high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, lymphoma. uh, And we have also healthy people that are just coming in for a shorter period of time, like a week. The reason we talk about supervision in that regard is, number one, not everybody's a good candidate for fasting. Some people should not be fasting. Give me some bad candidates. well, if people have for example creatinine levels over 2.0 their kidney function is inadequate putting them on a fast could shut their kidneys down resulting in kidney failure and death. Um, if they well, have Sorry, why? Cancer. I've never heard that but why would your kidney shut because down? Cuz when you go on a fast you r- massively mobilize a detoxification response and the kidneys can only process so much material. And if you overload the kidneys you end up with a Um, a kidney failure situation and that's you know you've heard recently there's been people that have tried dry fasting and dry fasting particularly puts a heavy load on the kidney and there was a death associated with one of its proponents just because you know you have to have a solute in order for the kidneys to function you have to have a way of getting the material that's mobilized out of the system why does fasting
1: trigger detoxification
3: Well, if you think about it, when you're going on a fast, there's nothing for the body to do except mobilize its reserves. And in water fasting, particularly in a resting state, those reserves are predominantly fat. In fact, we've done a study recently at the True North Health Center where we've used a DEXA scanner with software that allows us to do whole body composition. We've determined not only is mostly fat mobilized during water-only fasting, but specifically and preferentially visceral fat so a person might lose say for example 20% of their adipose tissue but they'll lose 50 60% of their of their visceral fat which is really exciting much faster than for example being on a uh, a low carbohydrate diet, in terms of the ratio of visceral fat mobilization to uh, subcutaneous fat. And in that fat contains a lot of fat soluble materials, and it's where a lot of toxins are stored. When those fats are mobilized, you get an increasing load PCBs, dioxin, pesticide residues, et cetera, All these fat soluble nutrients are rapidly mobilized, processed, and eliminated. But you need to have the capacity to actually eliminate materials, and most of those materials are eliminated in the urine. That's the blood Mm -hmm. being processed by the kidneys. And if you do a fat biopsy on any person, you'll find hundreds of different chemicals in various concentrations. And if you track back, how did those chemicals get in the body? Where did they come from? Obviously, if people take drugs or they smoke and they drink alcohol and they uh, eat foods from the environment that are polluted, that's a potential source. But about 90%, according to some researchers, got there from one behavior, and that's eating animal foods. Animals biologically concentrate the toxins from their environment. So a a, a calorie of animal food could have 2 to a 1,000 times the concentration of a given chemical compared to, say, a plant-based food calorie. And so the consumption of large amounts of animal food uh, potentially exposed people to proportionally higher ratios of these materials. And it's also why people on very high animal food diets often have a much more difficult time adapting to the fasting state initially because there's just literally more to process and eliminate. But it does. And so that's particular, I might mention, true of refined animal products, just like refined plant products have particular problems. So I think we need to be clear that it's actually these highly processed foods of any kind that seem to be the biggest sources of concentration uh, of of chemicals. It's not necessarily the brown rice that's the main problem. It might be the rice syrup or it's the products that the highly concentrated products that result in the the largest concentrations of uh, materials and, and desirable materials when you fast though the body rapidly mobilizes these materials if you fast and exercise though once you've depleted your glycogen stores after say 24 48 hours the only way the body would get the needed glucose to maintain muscle activity or excess brain activity would be through gluconeogenesis you'd have to break down proteins in order to get that so what happens is if you fast and exercise you actually lose more weight but more of its lean tissue that's if you fast and rest, you, you mobilize predominantly fat and specifically and preferentially visceral fat. So in addition to making sure a person's a good candidate for fasting with a history exam and lab, we also need to make sure they rest during fasting. Now, there's modified fasting where you take a certain amount of calories, therefore you have more glucose available, you're able to you know, minimize gluconeogenesis. That's a different process. Water-only fasting, though, needs to be done resting if you're going to maximize detox, preserve lean tissue, and maximize fat loss. And that we've been able to prove now. In a, we've actually done this, and we've done you know before, during, after fasting, six-week follow-ups. We've got the data. And so we can put a lot of the old wives' tales to rest. That paper will be published um, uh, later this year, and, and I think that'll really make people aware of just why this rest, which is so counterintuitive to people trying to maximize weight loss, is important with fasting and you know if the goal is to really detoxify the best way to do it is prep properly before fasting, really important. People that try to say quit coffee at the same time they're going on a fast really undermine themselves because the caffeine withdrawal is actually quite difficult. Fasting isn't so difficult. If you prep well, all of a sudden fasting doesn't even look that hard. People go to cooking classes, they're interacting, they go down to the dining room, they interact with people, even on these long fasts, two, three, four, five weeks. And they do fine, but they are resting. And so resting in some ways is a little bit harder But it's more effective. I say it's harder because you'll detox more. You'll feel worse. Mm -hmm. But we don't care how you feel. We care how well you get. So if you feel bad in fasting doesn't bother me as long as you get well you'll totally forgive us. And so next time you fast you want to make sure you rest during now it doesn't mean you can't do some stretching, you can't do meditation, there's things you can do, but they're more passive. And then you look at how your recovery is post fasting and you'll find it's really quite fabulous because not only do you get rid of the inflammation and the joint pain and some of the chronic injuries, but then you recover Quickly, and we, and we're able to demonstrate that quantitatively now as, as lean tissue recovers. Fat continues to go down after fasting. So you're losing fat, you're is- losing fat, you continue to lose fat, even though you're regaining, quote, weight because glycogen, water, fiber, and muscle come back after fasting. Fat does not. What's interesting is you have two pounds of glycogen. So you know you're going to get that two pound back. You've got fiber that has to go back in the gut. Unless you're eating an all-meat diet, then there is no fiber. Uh, And there's also um, hydration. There's a physiological dehydration with fasting. Now, that's more when you're exercising. You dehydrate more. So it looks like you're losing more weight, but all you're doing is dehydrating. Why are you dehydrating if
1: you're drinking water?
3: It doesn't matter if you're drinking water, if it's, you hold it in the cells. There's a physiological adaptation to fasting where there's a natural dehydration state. It's probably part of the conservation mechanism. There's a lot of weird things that happen, very contraintuitive during fasting. Like, for example, you know, we talked about exercise increasing brain-derived neurotrophic factor that preserves the brain and protects the nervous system. It also increases in fasting. You think about exercise, you're vigorously active. Fasting, you're laying on your... Around and not doing much. They both are changing these same things in the same way. It's it's really really um, non-intuitive. But when we look at the science, if we look at the data, and then we look at the clinical outcomes, it's really apparent. And now we're tracking people 30, 35 years. I've got people now that are in their 80s that we started off in their 50s. And they all say the same thing, including my mother, who at 92 had outlived all 50 of her lifelong friends. Every one of her friends was dead. She was alone. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients if they're going to do this diet. Make younger friends. (laughs) So I'm telling people starting right now, make younger friends. So when you're older and you're still around, you'll have people to interact with.
1: That, I mean, you know, still heartbreaking, but good problem to have. So talk to me about the longer duration fast. So I know that the longest fast is like 280 days, or I mean, just something absolutely absurd. So I knew that it was physiologically possible, but I imagined it was more proportional to the amount of body fat that you have. But like somebody with a normal BMI, um, maybe we'll peg
3: them at something like 15% body fat. How long can they fast? Water only. Right. So, an, a 155 pound, 70 kilogram male, okay, could go 70 days. Whoa. The problem is, once you get through fasting, you enter a process called starvation. And now, once you enter starvation, there's a relatively short period of time and then you die. We don't do that because it would really be bad for our outcome data. So we're very careful to avoid that. We've had 20,000 people walk in, 20,000 people walk out. We are experts at not letting people enter into starvation. The other thing with fasting, while we're talking about risks, is the refeeding period. If you have a long period of fasting and you refeed inappropriately, you can get a condition called refeeding syndrome, which can be fatal. It's a very serious problem where electrolyte balances and all kinds of stuff can occur. We've never seen that because we have a very specific refeeding protocol that's followed. Mm -hmm. And we refeed for a period of no less than half the length of the fast in a controlled setting so it is it is important you can also get a condition called post-fasting edema when you get off all the greasy salty processed crap that people are living on and you do a fast all that gets flushed out of the body if you then expose a person to very high concentrations of sodium like in commercial soups or something like that the body will suck that material and fluid up to protect itself from it and that can result in post-fasting edema if you do it slowly you can get back to whatever your normal diet was without that problem but it has to happen over a period of time so there's a refeeding period that's important particularly in this long-term fasting Mm -hmm. you know in the three-day the five-day fast for most people that's not going to result in you know as much of of an issue they may get a bellyache if they eat eat too much food but they're not going to get the very serious consequences as you can see in very long-term fasting now the other concern here is of course medications some medications you don't want to rapidly discontinue. Uh, anticoagulant medications, steroid medications, psychotic medications. The rapid withdrawal of those medications can induce a very serious uh, or life-threatening response. Um, some medications... You want to get off as soon as possible, uh, but you don't want to be taking those medications during fasting. So medications that might not do you that much damage feeding can be very serious fasting. Even non anti-inflammatories and common over-the-counter medications in the fasting state strongly contraindicated, uh, result in all kinds of downstream consequences. Um, supplementation is included. Lots of complications in the fasting state, whereas you wouldn't necessarily see any problem in the feeding state, that's one of the reasons we talk about making sure before a person undertakes a long-term fast, they have appropriate history, exam, and lab. Remember, 99% of patients have no complications uh, with fasting, but 1% can have very serious complications. Important that percentage be identified, monitored. So you don't end up with bad outcomes. Because that's what gives fasting a bad name is people doing it inappropriately. They continue to work. They get dehydrated, which is one of the main issues with fasting is maintaining adequate hydration. And drinking water itself won't uh, assure that. In fact, drinking too much water can flush your electrolytes out and result in um, water intoxication. So, so if we too don't much solve water, the
1: problem drinking air water, air. how do we solve the problem?
3: Right. We solve it by resting maintaining appropriate hydration and allow the natural recycling mechanisms in the body to maintain nutritional status and monitoring people so that we don't get into a depleted state. That's why we're monitoring electrolytes. That's why we do twice daily examinations on patients. So it is a safe and natural adaptation. Remember, fasting is a biological adaptation. You notice everybody, every human can fast. We have to be able to fast. Every human that couldn't fast died because every time spring came late, there's no way to sustain this bulbous neuronal net, our massively oversized brain, two and a half times the vast of, say, a chimp. Chimps don't fast. You don't feed a chimp in a week or so. They're dead. they That's why you'll never see chimps wandering away from the tropics. They live with a constant year-round supply of food because their brain doesn't change to burning uh, ketones. Your brain is a bifuel brain. It changes completely. The normal per- 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 fuel is glucose, and that's your main burner of glucose is your brain. That's the biggest thing, and when the brain goes into fasting state, it changes to burning ketone bodies, particularly beta-hydroxybutyric acid, and it becomes preferentially burning. It just burns a tiny little bit of glucose, and that's the little bit of gluconeogenesis that continues during fasting, unless you're active. Then, of course, your muscles burn glucose, and now you really start breaking muscle down. Mm. So – um, the brain, being a biofuel brain, had to be that way because otherwise humans, when spring came late, because we burned so much glucose in our brain, we wouldn't have been able to make it. And this is the mechanism by which fasting mimicking diets and keto diets play. Because If you go on a very high-fat diet or a high-fat, high-protein diet, which some people do, and you don't eat carbohydrates, this fasting mechanism kicks in. So your brain changes over to burning ketones. You go into ketosis, and it has a hunger-blunting effect. When you're in a ketotic state, you don't feel hunger. And as a consequence, that helps people that are trying to do short-term weight loss. The problem is what's good for short-term weight loss isn't necessarily the same thing that's best for long-term health stability. So in our clinic, we're not a weight loss clinic. We're not looking to maximize gross weight on the scale over a short period of time we're interested in fat loss and improving health so we're looking at what does it take not only to live a long life everybody wants to live their full potential but more importantly how do you avoid debility how do you avoid spending the last 9.6 years in debility 16 years in poor health that the average person is doing how do you avoid finding yourself unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to change your diaper for the last years or decades of your life how do you increase healthy life expectancy not just life expectancy The years you live fully functional. How do you ensure a good death? That means you live your life to your full potential. One day you go to sleep, you don't wake up because you reached your genetic potential and not become a debilitated uh, individual for years and decades where we spend most of our money in effectively trying to manage illnesses that were caused by poor diet and lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm. That's what we're using fasting to do is try to help healthy life expectancy and then a whole plant food SOS-free diet to sustain it.
1: If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Yeah. So, so- I think now, now's the time to get into that. So the whole idea of no salt, no sugar, no oil. Um, this was the thing that really pulled me in. So we used to joke, my last company was a nutrition company and we used to joke, if it tastes good, spit it out. And it was just like, <laughs> it's so many
3: things that taste good are just absolutely terrible for you. And right. But you know, that's because people are addicted to the artificial stimulation of these chemicals. We've done a study, a taste adaptation study. And we've shown with fasting, your actual uh, ability to detect salt and sugar, your hedonic response to food actually changes and you can taste vegetables that are naturally high in sodium but most people don't you know like they don't notice it after fasting oh my gosh you think wow this is really amazing and so good food starts to taste good again and sometimes the stuff you used to like is too spicy too salty Mm. because your actual palate is no, it can adapt back go back to eating that jerky and stuff eventually you'll get back to you know craving the salt but the point is it's not as hard as people think it's going to be long term because you get to the point where you actually would prefer, you know, the the beans and grains and nuts and seeds and these kind of things. It's not just discipline, you know, that drives it, except initially. And that's where fasting can be helpful. It makes that transition quicker. You asked about how long do people have to fast. Well, sometimes it only takes a few days of fasting to induce these real in healthy people. To induce these changes, that's why people that maybe do a yearly fast of three to five days or seven days find it can be very helpful. Not just the detoxifying the three days, five days, but the effect that it has on how they feel. They can overcome their hypertension, their diabetes, their autoimmune diseases. You know, glucose and insulin, everybody's interested in glucose and, and particularly insulin. It's profoundly affected by fasting. Fasting is one of the few things you can do to actually reverse insulin resistance. You know what another thing that helps with insulin resistance is? exercise Mm. that's why diabetics you got to get them eating right now is the smile because you're seeing
1: another place where those two
3: things line up it constantly repeats itself in fact one of the things we did to save time was identify the markers that improve with exercise and then test them in fasting (laughs) it's like it just saves a whole bunch of time because you know like for example igf1 insulin growth factor one the lower the igf1 the longer the animals live periodic fasting in rats for example you can double their lifespan just by doing periodic fasting. Of what duration?
1: Like just 16? Well,
3: and and remember, rats are completely different than people. So with rats, you can only fast about four days as their potential, not like humans, which goes 70 days or more. Uh, rats are very short so it's it's proportionally different time you don't compare days to days but the process of doing say for example every other day eating ad lividum will add you know significantly to the lifespan of the rat why well they measured biomarkers and they found out that insulin growth factor goes down and that's associated with both fasting and exercise (laughs) another one um leptin which is the, the lower the leptin levels is associated with reduced inflammation. And now the general theories are that inflammation is largely responsible for all kinds of things, not just the joint pain, but also your heart disease and cancer possibly and kidney issues. And so lower leptin levels seem to be good. Leptin levels go down uh, with fasting. Blood pressure and heart rate, I already told you, largest effect size ever shown treating hypertension in, with, with fasting, we have very dramatic and consistent results with that. We're doing a study right now with the Mayo Clinic looking at it's a phase one clinical trial of the treatment of high blood pressure using fasting instead of medication. The microbial load, you have what? Five pounds of bacteria living in your intestinal tract. A, a, tr- a thousand strains of different bacteria, living creatures eating and pooing inside you right now. And what those bacteria poo in you depends on what you feed them. And so if you feed, um, your bacteria soluble fibers, which is their, from our viewpoint natural food, you get vitamin K and fertilizer. Um, but if you feed them animal-based foods, you get completely different byproducts. They're associated with increased inflammation. So that's why we want to be careful about how much quantity, particularly animal protein. Um, the inflammation markers, like if you look at IL-6 and TNF and all these different markers they've identified that associate with inflammation, they go down with exercise and fasting. People that exercise regularly, people that fast periodically have lower levels of these inflammatory markers. But fasting doesn't just reduce things, it also increases things. So there's all kinds of markers now that have been identified going up with fasting. Um, things that improve and reduce inflammation, ghrelin and, and adiponectin. <laughs> I've adiponectin, I I never heard of that. With adiponectin? That. What is that? yeah. Uh, it's it's one of these markers that's associated with insulin sensitivity and, and inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, AMPK downregulates something else called PGC1-alpha, which is associated with increasing mitochondrial biogenesis, so the actual energy-producing guys that live in your cells go up with fasting. Now, if we, we were going to
1: build out the ultimate fasting protocol, and in fact, what do you do annually? I know you're doing the the narrowed eating window, so maybe a 16:8 or something like that. But when do you do a multi-day
3: fast? Yeah. So I I um I hate fasting. I <laughs> that was really it. yeah. It's it's awful because you can't exercise, you can't, you know, play basketball, you can't. You have to rest. It's really awful. But It's also very helpful. So I do it every year. I fast for a week. Our basic protocol is in healthy people, you know, that are on healthy diets, uh, generally have almost no downward symptoms during fasting. They don't have hunger. They don't have terrible healing crises. They don't get a lot of, it's pretty boring, frankly. So we meditate and we relax and we rest and try to do all the right things. And I do it for a week. And if at the end of a week, perfectly stable, no symptoms, that's it. Back to refeeding carefully, takes half the length of faster refeed, back to the whole plant food SOS-free diet. And we do that every year. And I I just did mine in in November. Very uneventful, very helpful on many levels, but not exciting. Patients much more entertaining because they're coming off animal products, they're coming off coffee, they're coming off alcohol, they're coming off medications. They'll have active healing crisis inflammation uh mucus discharge they'll have skin elimination you'll see the lumps and bumps falling off you'll see low back uh, discomfort you'll see headaches you'll see sleep disruption it can be very what i call entertaining uh and that you just keep going until that resolves
1: are are they getting those symptoms though because of the release of toxins like why on earth would your lower back
3: hurt Oh, because the kidneys are processing most of these metabolic products, and you get what's called visceral somatic referral pain for three to five days, and then it goes away. The other thing that happens is things um, mobilize in inverse proportion. So in other words, you can lose 50% of your visceral fat, but you only lose 20% of your adipose tissue and only 4% of lean tissue. And then the lean tissue comes back with refeeding, but the fat doesn't. The fat continues to drop. If you're doing the, males,
1: the SOS diet, right? So if you well, went yeah, back to your normal to, eating, yeah, you, to, you can't go trouble. back to
3: greasy, fatty, slimy, processed crap. That's not going to
1: work. <laughs> and I want to talk <laughs> more about the, the SOS program,
3: Part of the program is to educate people about how to eat. We do cooking demos, we do lectures, we have a whole Roku channel. We've got, you know, we do all kinds of stuff to what I call brainwash people, <laughs> so that they're prepared to go home and efficiently apply a whole natural foods diet. Uh, get lots of, we particularly like vegetable materials. So, both raw and cooked vegetable materials and these starchy, like cupboard squash and butternut squash and kombucha. We're not talking about, uh, tater, you know, tater tots and pr- flour products and sugary things and all kinds of artificial processed crap. We're talking about whole foods. Okay. So, right. your fruits, vegetables, um, non-glutinous grains. We don't use glutinous grains at all. We don't, we're, we're using more like when we talk about grains, we're talking about quinoa and millet and rice and, you know, like you'd
1: cook right, let's, Beans. let's dip into a few things specifically that as somebody who's, um, dabbled in sort of a, a plant first approach, but never gone vegetarian or vegan. Um, one, I've always told people that fruit is nature's candy bar. Um, what, what is it about, like, can I take an unlimited amount of fruit? Cause like, if you told me I could eat watermelon, apples, bananas, oranges all day, I'm in homie. Like I don't need anything that else. Work,
3: no. That's not going to work. So the problem is today's hybridized fruits are very high in sugar and very low in fiber. So they're not like the wild apples in Hawaii where they're looking more like vegetables. I mean, these are, and they're perfectly good foods if they're used appropriately. So we use whole fruit, not fruit juices, not dried fruits, not processed you know, artificial sugars. We're talking about your berries, your melons. And we usually have one meal that might have some fruit and two meals that are really more vegetable dominated. So they might, let's say, for example, somebody has oatmeal in the morning with some blueberries and maybe some flax seeds ground or some walnuts. They have a huge salad with big steamed vegetables at lunch and dinner with enough complex carbohydrates so they don't get too skinny. And so the idea is we're looking at about 10% of calories from protein, about 15 to 18% of calories from fat, with the balance coming from whole plant food carbohydrate. Now there's a problem. In order to get enough calories on this kind of a diet, you have to eat a lot of volume. Mm. You're talking about several pounds of food a day because you know potatoes, rice, and beans all have 500 calories a pound, not you know 2,000 calories a pound from say nuts or seeds or even higher from animal products. So you have to eat or 4,000 calories a pound from oil. So you, we're not pouring olive oil over everything. <laughs> we're just eating whole foods. There's no salt, oil, or sugar. It's just the salt, oil, and sugar naturally containing in these whole why, food diets. Why diet. is salt bad? Well, salt has a couple problems. Salt's not bad. So, sodium chloride is a necessary nutrient without which you die. You have to have enough sodium in your diet. It happens to be that you get all the sodium you need from, from the large volumes of these whole natural foods. Just like you get enough carbohydrate, you don't have to add sugar. And then you get enough essential fatty acids, including decosidic acid, et that you form from your DHA or you form from your omega-3 by eating whole plant foods but the problem with added salt is that it stimulates what's called passive overeating so if you just give an animal its fill till it feels satiated say rice whatever it'll eat a certain amount and then it feels satiated you salt it they'll eat significantly more and people say well, yeah it tastes better you're eating more because you like it better but you're eating more because the salt the, the chemical salt the sodium chloride in higher concentration stimulates dopamine in the brain results in an increased intake it affects satiety and so the problem for people trying to lose weight if they're eating salted foods, usually, too, the salted foods are things like flour products that are turned into breads or crackers or cookies that are also hyper-concentrated in calories. But the salt will allow them to eat more. Think about bread. If you take the salt out of bread it's and and you take out the, the sugar, it's called matza. Well, you know, it's, you know, they have to eat it once a week year on passover and that's it because that's the only time you'll talk nobody's running out buying big boxes of matzo as a routine because it's flour and water it doesn't taste good because any highly fractionated food needs salt oil and sugar or combinations in order to increase flavor that's what chefs are is people that take hyper concentrated foods and add salt oil and sugar to it and deliver it to the palate so it stimulates the brain in the most intense way possible we're saying get away from all that
1: let's um your addict analogy i think is very apt and i want people to burn that into their soul that there are some people that can get away with having some of this stuff and it doesn't become a huge problem though they would almost certainly be better off from a longevity perspective from a feel-good perspective if they went to a totally plant-based sos diet um but so for someone like me i don't struggle with my weight i don't have an addictive personality i can fast if i want just because i think it's better for me um but i When I think about going to a full plant-based diet, sort of uh, forgetting about a pure SOS diet for a second, but one of the things that I already eat that I know that I would eat is an avocado, like literally the avocado mash it, um, nothing else added to it. I take a raw baby carrot and then I put salt on the avocado. It is fucking delicious. Is it still bad for me though if I am... I'm not overweight. I don't have a problem overeating it. it, At that point, does salt still have such a problem that I should be cutting it out of my diet or am I only cutting it out to stop me from passive overeating?
3: Well, I think it's not just passive overeating because salt also is a very powerful preservative, which is why it's used you know, throughout history. To, before we had refrigeration and stuff, that helped food not go bad so people people could get sick from eating spoiled meats and other foods. And so it is an effective preservative. But when you think about the five pounds of bacteria that live in your gut, It may not be too good an idea to put too much of a preservative into that gut because it will alter the microflora. Part of the reason people on meat-based diets have completely different microflora than plant-based diets may in part be because of the higher salt intake Mm -hmm. that's oftentimes associated with it. Now, let's be clear. You know, vegan diets can be total crap. (laughs) Soda pop, uh, potato chips, and other generic terms for highly processed fractionated foods can all be vegan. Mm -hmm. You know, Oreo cookies are vegan. That doesn't make them healthy. It just makes them not have animal food in it. So I'm not arguing uh, that that uh, vegan foods can't be crappy foods. They certainly can. I get in trouble speaking at national vegan conferences explaining to people that as as challenging as meat products can be, the vegan processed food products may be worse and that they'd be better off eating the, the meat and that just gets them all upset because they're being driven from you know, moral, ethical, and spiritual viewpoints and mm-hmm. saving the planet and all that stuff. I'm not arguing that. I'm just arguing. I just want patients to live a long and healthy life and not be debilitated. And we know that too much animal protein is definitely a detriment. So people that are eating large amounts of animal protein have higher problems with kidney disease and cardiovascular disease, there's definitely, at some point, there's too much that needs to be reduced, even for people that are going to advocate animal foods as a whole natural food. Now, you might ask me, can people eat meat and still maintain optimum weight? Absolutely, because meat isn't a highly fractionated pleasure-trap food. It's a whole natural The problem with meat is it's very concentrated if you eat too much, but you can have problems. But it's not the same thing, for example, as dairy products, which are a highly processed animal food that has all the challenges of animal foods, but now it has the problems of the salt. Like, mm. try eating your cheese without salt. And see what it tastes like. Salt it's the salt so that good. people really like about it. Absolutely. Mm. So that, that's why this gets very clouded and confusing, is that because it's not just meat or it's not just uh, plants. It's it's a really a question of how processed foods are and how do we get away from Having so much processed foods and frankly, meat itself without salt, you know, just boil some meat and chew on it a bit and see if that's how appealing it is to you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah.
1: Now I think people get sugar and I think a lot of people so associate salt with heart disease or high blood pressure that they're, they can buy those two. The one that trips me out and that I'm super interested to get your take on is not bad oils, things that everybody considers bad, like, um, you know, uh, vegetable oil, you know, French fries, fried in oil, like that kind of thing.
3: But like what olive, about olive oil, oil on a salad,
1: okay. like yes. okay. that's the one I want Absolutely. to talk about.
3: So olive oil ha- is way less bad than the other oils. It's omega-9 fatty acid. It has a different ratio of fatty acids. It can be less processed. You know, theoretically, you can squish those olives and extract the oil. Uh, the thing is, it's still nine calories a gram of highly processed fat that begins to peroxidize as you break it down so there's still challenges even with olive oil now would you would i agree that olive oil is less bad than the others oh no question and particularly if it's not heated at high temperature which is the other problem with fats when you you do fried foods and i mean that's a whole another cascade of problems i don't think most people are arguing that that's good though most people know that's not but they're going to want to try to preserve well like mcdougall says john mcdougall says that people love good news about their bad habits (laughs) and so the arguments are that this is so much less bad that now it makes it good well that's not really true less bad just means less bad it doesn't make it good you don't need to fractionate or process your oils down you can get all the essential fats you need by using your avocado or, and minimally processing it. Okay, you mush it or you, you chew it up. But you don't have to extract the oil out of the cells and increase its uh, concentration, remove the fiber, remove a lot of the other benefits. Um, the problem with um, too much fat in the diet, though, is that fat is very efficient. Uh, and so as a consequence, it's really easy, particularly if you're eating refined oils, to overeat. You know, that one tablespoon of olive oil has more calories than the salad. So we we aren't really. We say, I just drink a put a, a little drip, but it's so rich we just aren't getting the proportion here. That pound of salad has a hundred ca- calories, whereas you know you've got a hundred, you know, uh, more than hundred calories in that in that dressing serving. So it, it, it's it's more than you think. And if you really literally just put a few drops on, what you find is you can't <laughs> taste it. There's no reason for it to even be there. So if I would say have your your avocado and your carrots, just leave leave the salt alone. You don't need the extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, added salt that and you know then you'll be back to a whole natural food diet that's sos free talk to me about variety
1: because honestly i could eat avocados carrots kale um a really small handful of things a a banana maybe an apple you know a couple times a week whatever i get that we can't overdo the you know now sort of bastardized fruit um but how much variety do I need to not be malnutritioned on a vegetarian diet? Well,
3: it's a surprisingly small amount, uh, and particularly if it rotates with the season. For example, if you ate just 2,000 calories, we'll just assume for a second that you were the average, you, you need more than that. But if you were the average guy, weren't working out, didn't use your brain that much, and you only needed 2,000 calories a day, just which is the RDA average. Um, my guess is you probably burn 3,000 calories a day or more. But at 2,000 calories a day, if you ate um, 2,000 calories of just, say, brown rice and broccoli, that was it, your entire diet, you would get all the vitamins, minerals, uh, protein, essential amino acids. You get about 80 grams of protein out of that. And, uh, you know, Three cups of rice, uh, four cups of broccoli. They, it would be a boring diet, but you would get everything except B12 that you need. You know, and that is one thing on these plant-based diets. If you really aren't getting the fecal contamination associated with animal foods, you do need to get a source of B12. It only comes from bacteria, and we use recommend a thousand micrograms of methylcobalamin a day, and that'll meet virtually everybody's needs. So that is an issue. You have to get out in the sun to get enough vitamin D. Because you're not mm-hmm. drinking your vitamin D fortified milk because you have to actually make it in the sun or supplement it if necessary. So um, fortunately, uh, you can avoid most of the other pills and potions and powders because these large volumes of plant-based foods have a high degree of nutrition. And particularly when you emphasize the green vegetable materials, the raw and cooked greens and your broccoli and chard and kale, these are really nutrient-rich foods, very low in caloric density. But you do have to eat a lot. And so that's, that's one of the downsides, a lot more eating and chewing. The good news is, though, you have normal microflora to feed your gut, so you're not getting TMA, which becomes TMAO, uh, which is so dominant in the meat. Uh, gut flora um, you're getting uh, all of the micronutrients that you need you get the fiber you have satiety you're getting enough hydration because you get a lot of water content from these water content rich foods in addition to whatever water you're drinking uh, but you do you do, and you don't have the chronic constipation which means you don't get the fissures and the uh uh, hemorrhoids and you're not having the varicose veins and the prolapsed uteruses and the tosis, and the diverticulitis and all the other conditions that come from a very low fiber diet and this is one of the challenges for people even they're trying to eat healthy but using an animal rich diet unless they get enough fiber in they're not feeding the microflora in their gut that's why colitis patients have so much trouble literally that microflora ends up having to eat the, the coating of the <laughs> intestinal tract you know because it's, it's going to survive just like you want to survive you feed it soluble fibers you get a different balance so even if you're gonna do a meat in the diet, you better get enough vegetables in addition so that you know you you get the fiber and the nutrients and the materials that you need.
1: Mike Mutzel, author, The Belly Fat Effect. I've never noticed the mental clarity thing that people talk a lot about. So I think I would have if I were going from poor diet to fasting. Then I think because you're getting rid of the brain fog that you can get from especially a high uh, high carb diet, especially if you're getting a lot of sugar. Um, but you said that you like to do interviews and things in a fasted state because you you think you're clearer, sharper, faster. I do. Yeah. Now
4: you know I, this is you bring up a great point. It's this biochemical individuality. Mm. And I think we hear you know ketones are great. So I need to be in ketosis to feel great, but everyone operates at a different level. I just find for me personally, uh, everything is
1: easier. Um, if you took exogenous ketones, would you get the same mental clarity? Is it the lack of something or the presence of ketones? Such an awesome question. I think it's the
4: presence of the ketones personally. Have you tried exogenous? I have, yeah. Um, I've noticed that, I mean, they jack your ketones right up, which... I would love to get back to because a lot of people are chasing ketones for fat loss, which mm-hmm. I don't think is ideal. But for the mental benefits, I think the presence of ketones has a lot of, of potential. How often do you take them? I only take them uh, when I travel like and sometimes before bed. Which and you take them when you travel for what reason? Because... I believe that traveling is stressful in the body in a way that the ionizing radiation, whatever your, this sounds totally woo-woo, I know, uh, but the Wi-Fi in the airplanes, uh, the recycled air, I usually just feel tired, Mm. more tired than I normally would considering it's just like an hour flight or two hour or whatever. So I like to take them before because part of the reason why ketones are so exciting to me is how they affect our gene signaling and protect our DNA and affect it. You know, we talked about. I've never
1: heard it protects DNA walking through. Yeah,
4: through it. the, through the sirtuin enzymes and the, it's a big long fancy word, the histone deacetylase inhibitors, the HDACs. These are common targets for various chemotherapy drugs they're hot uh they're upregulated when we fast when we exercise and when we're in ketosis mm. uh and maybe perhaps when we take drugs like metformin or rapamycin mm. so these are molecular switches that not only affect our body's preference for which fuel we utilize glucose ketones fats etc but they affect their like, affect stress response pathways and uh including autophagy and and others so yeah, if you're traveling, if you're sitting, if you're going to be in a stressful environment, if your occupation, this is a big one for a lot of people working at a hair salon or if they're cleaning homes, for example, cleaning apartment complexes, whatever, exposed to chemicals, I think ketones offer a lot of benefit in that regard because you're helping these stress response pathways.
1: That's so interesting. I've never heard about this before. So um, you're saying if I'm in a diet-induced or fast-induced um, ketogenic state, am I up- I'm upregulating the things that de-excite that stress pathway or is it that being in a ketogenic state is sort of a rest and digest parasympathetic place? Yeah, that's a deep that's a deep question. We could get
4: into it. So a lot of, because it's counterintuitive, because right now, if you look at my stress response hormones, I'm 24, 25 hours into a fast. My adrenaline, my noradrenaline, my cortisol are significantly probably higher compared to if I just was eating a normal day, yep. right? So logic would suggest that fasting is stressful. But what we see, that's the hormonal side of the stress response. And then we have the autonomic kind of central nervous system side of the stress response. What we see is parasympathetic tone and heart rate variability, which is HRV. A lot of people, you you measure it with your ring that you use, or a ring. This is a proxy of our autonomic nervous system. And
1: that increases in in favoring more of resilience. So my heart rate variability is going to go up in a fast Correct. Interesting. I've never tested that.
4: Yeah. It's a wonderful, I mean, I think that's the best biomarker people should use. And look, if you're brand new to this and you fast, it might decrease transiently, but over time it's going to improve. Yeah. So like if I don't need anything tonight when I wake up, my heart rate variability over the evening time and first morning will be significantly higher compared to if I had to have had two meals per day. And so I think that's a good biomarker. And then, you know, because there's so many people that say, well, it's just about energy balance, calories in, calories out. And there's really intelligent people that speak to that. And I could agree that you can get results doing that. Bodybuilders do that. Define results. Short-term body composition changes. Maybe at the expense of slowing down your resting metabolic rate. Because if we think about what our resting metabolic rate and metabolism is, adrenaline, noradrenaline, thyroid hormone. And dieting, prolonged calorie restriction tanks that. And so I think if people, again, I'm not a fan of calorie counting, by the way, but I just throw it out there because you know there's some reasonably smart people that think that ketosis is stupid. It's all about energy balance. Why do they
1: think ketosis is stupid?
4: Because some of the controlled feeding studies in metabolic wards show that there's really no difference in terms of fat loss between energy-equated differences in macronutrients. So if you have someone that's eating, three, let's just make it simple, a 1,000 calories a day, yep. they're a small person, and all of that is maybe it's on a high-carb diet, 1,000 calories a day from a high-fat, low-carb diet, ketogenic diet in 2 weeks in a metabolic ward study maybe there's not much difference in fat loss so they say see guys this it doesn't matter it's just energy in energy out mm-hmm. and yeah i'm not really totally concerned about fat loss is the best proxy of health number 1 number 2 these are short duration
1: studies in a controlled environment people are not living their normal life well let's this this is really interesting to me and i'm in that wonderfully dangerous place of i know enough to get myself into trouble um so let's be nice and inflammatory uh if if they're just equal why is ketones stupid or why is ketogenic stupid because i you don't get a downside
4: me neither um because individuals will say you're eliminating a major food group carbohydrates and okay. fiber and they'll say it's restrictive i think it comes down to trade-off and what are your goals if I'm trying to optimize testosterone, if I'm trying to put on as much muscle as possible, bench press, deadlift, squat, powerlift, as much as possible, I'm not going to give a crap about the ketogenic diet, right? Because those are
1: short-term goals, presumably. But wouldn't you still be really cognizant of what form the calories come in? Because I get the, the one thing about the, um, a calorie is a calorie that makes me super tense is your cells are made of the food that you take in. Mm-hmm. And so let's just take trans fats as an example, where the, the physical structure of the fat molecule is I'll, I'll call it damaged. It's rigid. So if you're taking rigid fat into your cell membranes and your cells theoretically become more brittle. Is yeah. that a fair assessment? I agree. So that's where like that all seems to break down. Like I definitively do not have all the answers in no uncertain terms, I'm ignorant to far more than I'm not ignorant to. I just don't quite understand the veracity with which people say you can completely disregard the constituent parts of the food. I'm not like, forget ketogenics, whatever. Sure. I'm not going to bat for keto or against it. I'm just saying it would seem to me that there's more than just the calimetry reading of a food item that we need to take into consideration. I'm in 100% agreement with you.
4: Not only, you know, are our cells, liver cells, brain cells, et cetera, made up of the molecules that you mentioned, the macromolecules, micromolecules, et cetera, but different food and different macromolecules and different nutrients in food affect signaling pathways, gene expression, microbiome composition. So there's a, it's not just Food can't be relegated to you know carbs, fats, proteins, DNA, protein, uh, water. Uh, we need to look at these other things. So, I, but they don't talk about that. And so I've I've tried to have an open mind and try to get the perspective of the calorie counting people because these are seemingly logic, pe- logic pe- logical people, PhDs or MDs. So I'm like, what is it that I'm missing? And most of the pundits and people promoting this idea will refer to a Dr. Hobbs, I believe is his name, at University of Kansas, Kansas State, something in there, where he did a study on himself, an end of one experiment in
1: 2011, I believe. This this the Twinkie diet? The Twinkie diet. Yeah, yeah. And it made a lot of, yeah, everybody's but that Okay, so one, dude, when I say I love your approach, yeah. you you absolutely have to be open-minded. And the last thing I wanna do is be dogmatic, cause you just, like I'm not interested in being right, I'm interested in having the right answer. Um, this one, though, this one feels like a religious argument where it, it would seem that the people that say this are interested in being right. Clearly, there's just so much at play. Um, it just seems weird to get like so super caught up in that. You can get lean on a Twinkie for sure. I think you're going to have a whole host of other problems, it would seem absolutely and, and that's why that study hasn't been replicated and it speaks to
4: what you were just alluding to i mean yeah you can get lean doing various things but is being lean the absence of fat the pre, the presence of health does that equate health mm-hmm. we know many bodybuilders who are very lean six percent body fat after a competition they have a congestive heart failure heart attack or die so it's not that you know body fat obs- can have problems and challenges and is linked with inflammation and where your body fat sits is a big deal. But that's where I think it gives people power because it's not just about your diet. It's about your sleep, your relationships, your stress management, you know, your mindset, uh, exercise, your kidney rhythms. There's all these things. And if you, you know, just relegate food to just calories, you miss all that. But it brings back to what you were saying. It's not about being right, you know. And I think people, and I've learned this myself, I've had to have an open mind. Like, Because i read negative ketogenic diet studies because i want to challenge my own beliefs so i don't i'm not in this echo chamber i talk about those negative ketogenic diet studies and when i'm reading it i'm trying to have remove my bias it's very hard as human beings our, our mind is wired to be very biased we're constantly when we watch videos like this or read books we're trying to confirm what we already believe you know what i mean and so we need to kind of remove ourselves from that a little bit and and realize that's how we're wired and we're set up that way, but it doesn't mean we have to be that way.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So uh, there's no question that we all have that bias, and I will definitely lump myself in there. But if your obsession is, like for instance, if your obsession is longevity or feeling good or whatever, it's like... You can pretty easily get out of your own way on that and then just steer by what makes something feel good or not feel good. One of the things that, at least on a a ketogenic diet that I find so interesting is it changes your relationship to hunger. Um, I can fast for, I intermittent fast every day. um, My averages call it 20 hours a day. Mm. So every day I'm, I'm fasting roughly 20 hours a day. But when I look at like what the primary driver for me in terms of wanting to be open to something is to have an even better effect. So if somebody said, no, 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 if you eat Twinkies, you're going to feel even better. Oh, rad. Then I'll, I will try it. One, that sounds a lot more fun. And then two, you can see like where you fall in something, but where do you live in terms of diet? Are you always keto? Or are you sometimes keto? You've talked about seasonal eating. Like how sort of do you structure your day to day living? It's an awesome
4: question. I think everyone needs to think about what their unique goals are. So for me, trying to optimize brain function, that's just my primary goal. And then when I exercise, I want to optimize my physical performance. Like if I'm going to do a lot of volume, I will have carbohydrates. So I guess you could call it like a targeted cyclical ketogenic style diet. If I'm sitting here traveling, you know, I've been sitting all day. I'm going to go on an airplane in an hour or two after this. You know, I don't need carbs for that. I don't need sweet potatoes. I don't need butternut squash. So it's mostly a fasted, low calorie type day. So yeah, I mean, my approach is just, you know, have the carbohydrate commensurate with the activity. Mm. So if you're not doing much activity, you probably don't need a lot of carbs.
1: And so uh, when I think about like managing the microbiome and trying to get as much diversity, I, I will eat things that um regard like let's say that i never worked out i would still bring in things like berries or maybe even the occasional piece of fruit or something just to to try to introduce as much variety as i can i'm talking color so that we're you know getting uh, micronutrient variety as well just making sure that i have a robust microbiome that has a lot of different diversity um do you think that's bullshit does that make sense um, if somebody doesn't have an increased need for carbohydrate, is there still a reason for diversity of microbiome to eat rice or vegetables or fruits or berries? It's a beautiful question. Five years ago,
4: I would have said absolutely. but that's, And that's why I was hesitant to even go keto in the first place. Did a lot of research into you know, how different foods and overall food diversity affects diversity here in our microbiome. And so we know that. Uh, I thought that was the most important thing, and some research out of UCLA recently showed that actually ketones may influence those different strains, Acromenzia mucinophilia, Fecobacterium presenitiae. These are common strains that are kind of like these keystone species that influence the diversity, And, and really, when we talk about when people are chasing, and I understand where you're coming from, but so everyone understands the context, why is gut microbiome diversity healthy? it it translates into stability. Stability in any ecosystem is resilient, right? It can take little small hits. How do you you circumvent this practically? Mm -hmm. I think it's unless you have an autoimmune disease, unless you have severe gastrointestinal dysfunction when you have a berry or rosemary or ginger, I think it's best to eat what's in season in your environment. Do I have a randomized placebo? In the
1: environment I live in or in the environment ancestrally that I came
4: from? I, I think it's a combination of the two. I think if you can keep in mind your genetics and context, but also your local environment, if we take your microbiome now and then put you in Africa, it's gonna be different, absolutely, because the water, the bugs you're exposed to, the people you're in contact with. So, I, But your genes are not going to change. So I think it's it's melding the two. I think you have to, the only diet that humans could eat before the advent of electricity, gas, refrigeration, and so forth, was what was available to them locally. And here we have, and I'm not picking on green juice or whatever, but let's say in January where there's no vegetables growing in Wisconsin, you're having a celery juice because it's mm-hmm. healthy. How healthy really is that? Because we know that hibernating animals, for example, their microbiome composition and diversity changes with the season. So is it is it the food? Is it the seasons? There's Long story short, there's a lot of crosstalk between our microbiome and our own tissues. And so their community... Communicating to us, and we're communicating to them, and and so I think getting back to the practical takeaway from this whole conversation is we need to understand that the food that we eat is being absorbed by us, but it's being utilized and absorbed by those Mm. gut bacteria as well. And we need to, as many of your guests have talked about, keep that in mind because I think that relationship is is fairly important, and studies show that. And we know that kids that get antibiotics in the first year of life tend to be have more autoimmune and allergies and even obesity mm. later and just not being birthed through our mother's vagina as opposed to being delivered C-section, lack of breastfeeding, there's so many different things, but you know, is the dearth or the lack of fiber gonna negate the my- health of the microbiome? Again, five years ago when I said absolutely. Now I'm like, all these people are thriving on meat only diets. Mm. You know, if we think the microbiome imbalances are triggering autoimmunity, yet these people are reversing autoimmunity
1: The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Yeah, let's talk about that. So carnivore diet, Um, pretty interesting. I hear a lot about people doing beef only, which is interesting. And so when my wife first started having crazy microbiome issues, basically unintentionally, she just was going towards like what makes her feel okay, she gravitated towards a wildly predominantly beef diet. Are there people that have tried it that are saying... Uh, I can't do it with beef, but I can do it with chicken or organ meat. or like, is there a sort of variety in that or is beef the one that people consider the safest of the carnivore diets? I
4: think that's where people are leaning, at least the conversations that I had and I'm not an expert in this space, I thought it was the dumbest thing people could do ever because I had my head so wrapped around this whole microbiome story and I thought, how are you gonna get the fiber, how are we gonna get the short chain fatty acids, all of this. But then I, I, I listen to the comments on my YouTube videos. I, I read direct messages on my Instagram and I'm just blown away. Either these people are lying or they're telling me the truth and I really believe them. Have you tried it? Uh, personally, yeah. So I've been doing it for the past three months. and Now, right yeah. now? Not st- super st- only? No, so that's the thing where it's a little bit different. So, so we do, we have backyard chickens, so we do eggs. Uh-huh. We do turkey eggs, chicken eggs, turkey eggs. Is that eggs.
1: considered a carnivore?
4: Yeah, I think any animal product is considered carnivore. Okay, interesting. What blood markers are you watching? Um, sleep, sleep scores, heart rate variability, body temperature, blood glucose, and ketones. My my hemoglobin A1C increased by five tenths of a point. So it increased. went from increased, which is surprising huh. to me. Yeah, four point eight to five point three. But everything else, I mean, iron ferritin increased, which I was probably expecting eating more red meat, things like that. You um, worried at all about cholesterol? No, because my triglycerides are historically low. Um, That's I, the only one you worry about. Well, I worry about cholesterol when triglycerides and glucose and liver enzymes are out of whack. So your liver tends to take the brunt of metabolic burden first. It's a key metabolic signaling hub, and so if your liver enzymes start to rise, your glucose is rising, your hemoglobin A one C is rising, then and your triglycerides are increased, then I'm I'm more concerned about what's going on with your LDL cholesterol, uh, you know, and your low HGL. Mm. But without that context, I'm not totally worried about it. And the thing that people don't really realize is like your body can convert protein via gluconeogenesis to mm-hmm. glucose. Um, There's certain cells and tissues, red blood cells, the neuron, various central nervous system cells within our brain that need, absolutely need glucose. They can't use fats or ketones. Right. Protein can be back converted as can liberating stored body fat. that Body fat is, you know, you have your triglycerides and, on, you know, your triglyceride. On top of that is glycerol. And when you liberate that for free fatty acids to make ketones, that glycerol gets converted to make glucose. So a lot of people think you need to have carbs to raise glucose for obligate glucose-utilizing cells, but that glycerol backbone gets shunted right into that cycle. Mm. So yeah, it's it's interesting, Tom. I, I don't know what the solution is for people. Should they go carnivore? Should they not? I think if you have digestive issues it's worth a shot and it sounds so polarizing controversial but you know in functional medicine we've been talking about this for a while we you know people like jeff bland and sid baker mark hyman an elimination diet which was essentially just basically plain old white rice and lamb that was it like that's almost carnivore in the sense obviously if you overdo the white rice you're going to negate some of that but it was really eliminating all the variables that could affect the immune system
1: Man, I'm really interested in this. One, that's the kind of thing I like to eat. Um, Like if you told me that I could have hamburger and eggs, I'm done. Like I don't need anything other than that. Um, And because I don't struggle, like I could eat a very what most people call boring diet just because it's the same thing over and over and over. Um, I'd be very fine with that. Like you said five years ago, you'd give a very different answer. Five years ago, I would have said yes. In fact, for an accidental period, probably of about six months, I was like, vegetables are unimportant. You don't need them. And I felt like money. Mm. I was absolutely fine. I would it Was it a true carnivore diet? It must have been pretty fucking close. Like it would have been um, beef, eggs, cheese probably some lettuce and pickles that would sneak in on burgers occasion, but obviously I don't eat the bun, I don't have ketchup or anything like that. Um, So it would have been real, real close.
4: Yeah, I mean, so the question is, you know, is are you gonna make your microbiome more resilient or not? People should try various diets and see what works for them. And I think a lot of people get stuck in this regimented thing where, and it can backfire on them too, They're, they're carnivore. So then when berries come in season, when people might watch this towards the end of summer, Blueberries are gonna be in full swing. Does that mean you totally avoid blueberries? Because there's, I believe, I'm not one of these people that think plants are bad. I think blueberries, the anthocyanidins and the various antioxidants have a lot of benefit to your microbiome and to your body in general. But then when you start to identify that you're a carnivore or you're a keto or you're vegan, then you close yourself down a little bit so i think in your case you don't have any major health issues that i'm aware of you know that you've talked about so i would just continue what you're doing but maybe in the winter probably the best time to go carnivore
1: i'm gonna say fuck you (laughs) and here's i don't have i have one health issue and that is i'm dying so the only real question i care about in every health theory episode i do is how do i live forever like if you're steering by how you feel which is essentially what i do I just don't know what its impact is on longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, if a carnivore diet, like if somebody could tell me, no, 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 a thousand percent. If you do a carnivore diet, you're gonna live to 150. I'd be all over the carnivore diet all day, every day. When wouldn't even think about it. I'd never touch another fucking blueberry in my life. Like I would just eat it. Um, but it's it's that big fucking question mark about longevity that winds me up. Well, let me pose this question to you. How could a
4: diet be negatively affecting your longevity if it makes you feel better? That mm-hmm. makes your sleep better if it improves your heart rate variability if it makes you stronger if it makes you recover better. How could it ne- slow down your longevity? I mean, or affect longevity in a negative way? I don't know. Maybe I'm not thinking about this through properly, but it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. This shit is so interesting, man. Like, yeah, look, I I love the experimentation. I love the open mind. Really, be looking for new things. In fact, to that point what is something that you're excited about now? Totally improving, I get it, you're not the expert, you're not like putting your your chip on the roulette wheel, but like what's something that's cutting edge right now that's got you really excited? You know, I
4: think the the ability to manipulate mTOR has made me very excited. So we kind of talked about mTOR's kind of the gas pedal on our cells to grow. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the reasons that you fast, one of the main benefits of fasting prolongly is affecting glucose, insulin, mitochondrial function that we introduced the show on, but it it drops mTOR to the floor. And we know that chronic mTOR overexpression is linked with premature aging diseases. So I think the ability through drugs, through exercise, and through fasting protocols to manipulate this critical energy sensor called mTOR is super fascinating. So I think, you know, right now in 2019, a lot of people are microdosing psilocybin and LSD. I personally experiment with that fairly often. I think in two years, people are going to be microdosing rapamycin. People are going to be microdosing various mTOR inhibitors mm. to, to like, they're like called calorie restriction mimetics. So we're kind of manipulating the physiologic effect. Aren't
1: people already fucking with rapamycin?
4: It's a very few oh, and far you between. You mentioned
1: the other one. I'm blanking on it right now. Like metformin. Metformin, yeah. Is Do you another, take metformin? I don't. I take berberine. Interesting. So the one thing, like when the cameras stop rolling, yeah, the one thing a lot of people are like, yeah, I fuck with it, really? is, is that, 1,000%. I'm talking about doctors. Yeah. Where I'm like, all right, then. Like, it's one of those, it is only my fear of the unknown, where it's like, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, and I don't know what kind, because they've been giving it to diabetics and cancer patients for a long time. Long time. So uh, I don't know what kind of studies have come out based on that, but. It, metformin is probably one of the safest drugs you can take. Mm-hmm. Um,
4: it's actually very poorly absorbed. Here's what's really good. Co- so i have you know, studied the microbiome forever. I'm very curious about how these drugs work. Yeah, like it's only 33% or something like that is absorbed. How is it working? It's affecting your microbiome. It's affecting the gut hormones and your bugs. So very safe. The only thing you might need to add more of would be B12 and folate because it purportedly does affect methylation and or absorption. But that's a very safe drug. I, I, I'm not. I wouldn't be ashamed to take. Say that I take it. I don't. I take berberine. So I do that 500 milligrams of berberine hydrochloride. Same weight. thing,
1: meant to slow mTOR.
4: Yeah, well, it, it affects AM. I don't want to get complex into the biochemistry, but you have kind of a, a yin-yang. You have mTOR's growth. AMPK is breakdown, okay? You don't, one's neither good nor bad. Or they just are. Uh, berberine and metformin increase AMPK. AMPK is a switch, just like mTOR is a switch. They're different knobs. So it's breaking down what? Crap inside our cells. Okay, so this is a little bit like autophagy AMPK and mTOR are the key cellular switches that ultimately guide autophagy and govern whether or not we're going to tear down Break down, you know, aberrant proteins uh, dysfunctional proteins aggregated proteins dysfunctional organelles We kind of talked about how our cells are like little homes inside our appliances Those appliances become dysfunctional and that's where autophagy self digest comes in. And so you have a bad furnace, autophagy in, will help to clear that. A bad furnace in your cell would be a, a mitochondria, Golgi apparatus, endoplasmic reticulum. There's all these different compartments. It's even speculated that the ability to break down fat and glycogen, store glucose, is autophagy mediated. Even recovering from exercise. This is what's so cool. So when we feel sore after workout, how do you think our body recovers from that? It's mm. via autophagy. And breaking down those damaged proteins so that we can rebuild them so that they're stronger for our next workout. So I like to throw that in there because when people hear autophagy, they think fasting, mm. but that's just one knob on the cetophagy wheel. Exercise, there's a ton of data showing that exercise enhances autophagy because you're causing your body to dig
1: deep and break down glycogen for that workout. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. I'm going to put you to the test for Let's a second. It. So. Hiding behind the screen, door number one, is somebody. I'm not going to tell you anything about them. I'm not going to tell you if they're a man or woman, overweight, ripped, whatever. Um, But you have to tell them how to eat for longevity and feeling good. How should they eat? I would say Sally or Joe, look,
4: I don't know what your health issues are. I don't know what you're experiencing. But we're going to get you off anything that comes in a, a box, bag, or a can. So no processed food. No processed food. I want you to go to a farmer that's within a 50-mile radius of you. Ask them what you can buy that's in season and, and buy the animal products that you feel comfortable consuming. I don't really care so much as what you eat and how much. I want you eating at the same time every day, whatever that is. So influencing the circadian rhythm so there's a lot of new research studies where they're controlling how many calories people are eating the same amount of calories but if they force it into a confined window Mm. it changes
1: this mTOR expression and not just a defined window but the same defined window every day you hit on the head exactly so if you're Mm. if you're going to intermittent fast great
4: then eat from say you know noon to six or two to eight it doesn't matter but just try to be consistent just like we should try to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, you know, we hear a lot about toxic blue light. Well, when we eat and food in general affects our circadian biology. We have molecular clocks in our gut, and our muscle, and our brain, and our pancreas everywhere. Food entrains that
1: clock too. Hmm. That's really interesting. I haven't heard that before. Um, is there? a number of hours before going to bed that somebody should be cognizant of having their last meal? So eating earlier is generally better. Mm.
4: So you don't, and it's tough to be social too because here we are talking about food, but relationships are so key. And, you know, you know when you go out to dinner, sometimes you're out to 10 or 11, eating late. I generally advise people to kind of cut things off by 7 p.m., which can be
1: tough for whatever, you know. If the person didn't have any concerns about a social life, what would be the ideal window? I mean, me personally, I would say 10 to 4, 10 a.m. to
4: 4. And it's controversial to talk about this because a lot of people are skipping breakfast and lunch and just having dinner. If that's working for you, keep doing it. I don't ever want someone to change what's working for them just upon research that I tell them. But there's some research from University of, I believe it's Arkansas, one in Alabama as well, that they're looking at ETF, which is early time-restricted feeding. So if you look at this umbrella of intermittent fasting, within that are different protocols, alternate day fasting, the five 2 16, eight, where you're fasting, like you fast for 24, basically, yeah. 20 hours a day. Within that is this time-restricted feeding bubble, and they are having subjects eat earlier in the day, so they started eating at eight and cutting off at two, and that was it, and what they showed is there was a dramatic increase in autophagy just by doing that. Hmm. Changes in hormones, changes in glucose, insulin, but we always think, well, if autophagy is good, more is better, but if we think in overweight people, their fat cells have higher levels of autophagy occurring. It's a compensatory mechanism because if you were to, it sounds weird, but if you were to biopsy someone who's morbidly obese and you look at their fat tissue, there's a lot of necrosis and like literally tissues are dying. There's a lot of immune cells. So if you didn't know anything about autophagy and you looked at adipocytes and obesity, you would think autophagy is bad because it's upregulated. Right. And so, I just want people to understand, and certain cancers utilize autophagy upregulation to avert the immune system to help it. So it's interesting. So it's not this clear, Some it's good or bad. It's contextualized Mm -hmm. and tissue specific. Mm -hmm. And sometimes more is not better. So that a lot of people are doing, hey, I did a 24-hour fast. Let's just roll it out to 96 hours, 72 hours. Well, What are your goals? Why are you doing this? Sometimes more is
1: not better. Kellyanne Petrucci. New York Times bestselling author, The Bone Broth Diet. I wanna live forever, that's the real truth. Mm -hmm. Um, It's probably a long shot, but anything that I can do to feel better, uh, perform better, look better, I'm certainly gonna be down with. So what is, what are the lifestyle changes that somebody should make if they really Mm -hmm. wanna look good, feel good? for a very, very long time.
0: Yeah, we're see we seeing now longevity is really spiking. So what you feel is what so many people are feeling because we've been through so many one-hit things. First it was, you know, fat. Oh, well, you know what? We don't want eating eating fat. We're gonna have you on all these other kind of fats. We're gonna have you on vegetable and canola and sunflower and safflower. And we find Mm. out that these are so inflammatory but that by the time you put them in your cart, they're already rancid that's
1: interesting i never hear people talk about that so explain what is so problematic about those on the shelf it's very simple
0: it's very simple the containers in which they're held Mm. they are clear a lot of them and light gets through oxidizes the oil and it becomes literally rancid Mm. and rancid oils mean inflammation so when we're talking about aging anti-aging all of that that's one of the premier easy things the, the basic premise and the choices that we can make is the oils that we use we're going to go on to coconut oils different kind of oils healthier oils time magazine had on their cover eat your butter so we keep going through these corrections and we did the same thing with sugars oh sweeteners we can't we can't do regular sugar it's not good for us so let's do the pink yellow and blue packets then it's stop let's not do that Let's go on to these type of sugars. Let's go on to more monk fruit, stevia, things like that. Another big course correction. Same thing, meat and potatoes. Let's go from meat and potatoes. Let's go from that to all meat. Oh, well, that's not working. Let's go to all juice. Well, that's not working. Let's go to more paleo. Well, that's not perfect. Let's go to paleo-ish. Okay, well, let's go to keto. That's almost right. Now, what about keto 2.0 or kind of keto?
1: What is kind of keto?
0: Well, kind of keto is taking the basic principles of keto. And basically, with keto, the problem is that people aren't getting enough fiber. Because of the carbohydrate allowance, which is about Mm -hmm. 5% of the the diet, is is carbohydrates. That's not enough for people to be able to explore carbohydrates in the way that they should. So they become constipated and irritable. They're the two things that we see with people who stay on keto for a long period of time. Mm
1: So I stayed on keto for nine months. Mm -hmm. Um, It was awesome. I felt wonderful. Mm -hmm. My relationship with food completely changed. That's key. But I didn't at all. um, I didn't have constipation or anything. I didn't have any trouble. My bowel movements were Mm -hmm. money. But I did notice um, my muscle mass was going down. I just felt softer. I was trying to keep my carbs essentially at zero. Yeah. Um, And I go back and forth. I'm, I'm saying all of this because I go back and forth on fiber, and it's important. So, right now, I get fiber because I do. Um, I have some vegetable matter, I have some nuts, but I probably get 70% of my calories from red meat just to really mm-hmm. trigger people. Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't
0: trigger me because but, for some people, it works. I started telling you about these mid course mid-course corrections yep. because I st- I've seen everything in nutrition, and I can sit here and tell you honestly for the first time. I'm seeing some really positive things in nutrition. We're starting to get it right. When you understand ancestral medicine, ancestral nutrition, we really do work better with some foods. And then there's also environment that you have to consider, and that's the environment that you put yourself in. And you stay in, because that has different effects on the body and how you digest, how you metabolize, Mm -hmm. all of that. But there are foods that tend to work best with our body. And that's when I went into a whole dive and started really exploring these foods. I thought, why doesn't anyone know this? That's why I wrote nine books. Why doesn't anyone know this? Why doesn't anyone know that these foods really do juice us up? So what I loved about paleo is it broke down each food category and it said, hey, listen, if you want proteins, these are the best proteins. Red meats work really well for some people. They really do. It depends on the amount of inflammation that you have in your body. It has to do with prostaglandins. It has to do with so many inflammatory markers in your body. But some people are able to eat more red meat than others. And also with, with paleo, it breaks down vegetables, so, You know, energy vegetables versus fibrous type of vegetables. How much you should have of that. Fats. Here, here are the good fats. So that's why I really gravitated towards that because it basically just broke down the macros and said, these are really good proteins. These are really good fibrous vegetables. These are really good energy vegetables. And your energy vegetables should really match what your needs are. So it's not a matter of, you know, carbohydrates are terrible for you. They're inherently bad. They're not inherently bad. You just have to match your energy. You have to match the amount of energy that your body needs to really fuel itself and to really drive. And that's the key. And so, you know, keto, the same thing with fats. We, we, most people, when they started keto, they were 50 to 75% fat. That works great for some people, it doesn't for others. It provides a level of discomfort. What I care about, and what matters to me, and what matters for longevity is that we're getting these foods that our body recognizes. We're getting these foods that our body understands. We're getting these foods that our body drives off of. Now the the template in which it falls, I believe it's very similar for us. But how much that you should have and the balance that's right for you, now that's where it gets a little bit different. And that's where personal play has to come in. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of these diets provide awesome guidelines, awesome guidelines, but you have to know how to read your body.
1: Okay, so before we go into the individual stuff, you gave a great high level overview. Now let's dive in. So, getting back to the initial question of what is the, the ideal for somebody that wants to uh-huh. extend their um, high level performance, mm-hmm. uh, what is the sort of perfect diet? I get that, that the truth is you have to try it for yourself and that there is massive amounts of variability, there but is. it'd be great to just pick that sort of middle person right in the bell curve. Smack in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, what is there? What are actual things that they should be getting at the grocery store?
0: Yep, So the highest quality that you can afford—that's okay. number Whole one. Whole food.
1: What do you mean by high quality? High
0: quality. So if you can get organic, get okay. organic. So you can get pasture raised. You know, get pasture raised. You can get grass fed meats. Awesome. I firmly believe that most of us op- operate really well off of meats. Mm. Okay. So I also find that a lot of people in terms of protein operate really well when they put a lot of fish in there instead of red meat. So if you're thinking, how do I build this plate? Kellyanne, just tell me how I build this damn yeah. plate. You wanna have protein, like you said, go to the grocery store, buy some really good proteins that work for your body. Get them get as, as healthy as you can, as you can because quality actually does matter. Try to balance that plate out. Make sure you have some fibrous vegetables. What are those? It's the green stuff. I don't care if you juice it. I don't care if you chop it. I don't care what you do. You know, so we talk about quality of food and you know, uh, what can they do? Should they only eat organic? If you saw what I saw and you saw what, really, what people were really eating, I'm not worrying about a chicken carcass that's not perfect all the time. If you can get people to eat in balance, get as best quality as you can, get in balance, and, and it makes such a such a big difference.
1: All right, so I want to really pinpoint this notion of balance. So when you say balance you are talking uh, protein, fat, carbohydrate like
0: Yeah, so what? so yeah, because a lot of it's very off kilter. Some people work operate fantastic on 50% fat. And then other people can operate on 25%. It depends. This is why with keto, I'm just saying when people were on have been on keto, after a while we start hearing, well, it's not perfect for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of women uh, look, and I know people are going to write and say, "Are you kidding me? I got these results. I got these results." for some people, when you're at a starting point where you need to lose a lot of weight, it gets the weight off. Mm. It makes the skin look a lot of better, a lot better. But it's a matter of finding that balance somewhere between paleo, somewhere between keto. So you have, so we go into a more weight maintenance and not diets, but more weight maintenance and more into longevity, and more into sustainable diets. What's sustainable for you is different for other people. And that's the whole key. And that's what people want right now. This is what I'm hearing over and over again. They wanna wanna look at things and approach things very different. People are looking at things for the first time, I think, more spiritually, more spiritually in their food. And that's why we're talking so much about plant-based everything now. It has to do with spirituality. People are feeling good on plant-based foods. And that's why the keto-ish or the keto 2.0, they're adding more plants, they're adding more opportunity for people to eat more vegetables and things. Is
1: keto becoming a buzzword though? So I was fat phobic for a very long time and I had massive inflammation as a result. I wasn't Mm -hmm. eating carbs, but I was eating protein. Probably 85% of my calories I got from protein. Um, I was trying to keep carbs as close to zero as possible, trying to keep fat as close to zero as possible. I basically lived in rabbit starvation, absolutely atrocious for the joints. It got me lean as hell. I looked fucking awesome, but I did mm-hmm. not feel great. Uh, <laughs> so I finally um, I encountered Dom D'Agostino, Peter Attia. They're yeah. like, look, you need to be consuming fat. They started talking about ketogenics. And when they were talking about it, it was all about... You take a blood test, and there are either ketones in your bloodstream or there are not. So, if you're going to define keto 2.0, so if keto 1.0 were defined by ketones in your bloodstream, what's keto 2.0?
0: It's mid fat and fiber. That's and when how I you want say you to look. Mid-fat, so, mid so fat—that's
1: quantity of fat.
0: Mm-hmm. So you still think fat before carbs. However, it's different now because there's the the, the ratio has now changed where you can have more carbohydrates so just think about it like that it's really it's really allowing more fiber through allowing more carbohydrates so people can stay they they feel like they can sustain longer and that's the key so whenever you have comfort in eating the results are far greater so it's a it's about allowing the body to experience comfort we see a younger generation coming in and their tolerance for things like uh, you know I remember just driving myself trying different diets and bodybuilding and body and li- weights and you know doing shows and competitions and how lean am I can I see this am I ripped and I'll, it's very different now so now what they want to see is they want to they want to have more peace they want to feel more fulfilled it's much more about loving themselves we're starting to really change all of that that pain gain thing and we're going more towards you know let's feel better all the way around Let's feel better. Let's have joy. Let's feel better. Somehow, this word joy has captured people, mm. and they actually want to experience more joy and not as much of the grind.
1: It's interesting. And that certainly brings up stress. Mm. So uh, what's the role of stress when we think about longevity? Um, how detrimental? How does that impact us? What do we do to solve some of the problems that it creates?
0: Yeah. So that is the entrepreneurial's dilemma. Yes. Okay. And that's funny because when we start achieving greatness and more greatness and we start really achieving all of these things, sometimes life doesn't get easier on our bodies and and we really start experiencing more stress than we did before and we have to figure out how to manage it because I can tell you, stress will take you down every time. Everyone has stress in their life and somehow, and that's what I realized in talking with all these people, that everyone has some kind of stress and stress damages cells.
1: so I know that you went through a really stressful period that uh, manifested in losing consciousness on a flight, which is, (laughs) uh, sounds, uh, terrifying. Yes. What have you done to rebuild from that? Mm. Like, what are you doing now to de-stress? Is it about joy? Is it about, uh, meditation, forest bathing? Like, what are the things that you're actually doing that are somewhat prescriptive that people could follow if they're trying to, to bring their stress down?
0: For me, I think a lot of my stress had to do with uh, not having boundaries. I was boundary deficient. I was boundary deficient in so many areas of my life. I look back, and even when I look back, if I look at pictures or selfies, it's like, how did you not see that coming? You looked burnt out. You were burnt out. So I was on this plane, uh, and <laughs> I remember the woman sitting next to me she was in the middle of putting a cookie in her mouth I'm not kidding and I turned to her and I said hey, my name's Kellyanne. I'm not feeling well. I'm on not on any medications but I'm probably gonna pass out and you're gonna have to get me help. That was the last thing I remember. Next thing I was in the galley of the plane with all of the airline, um, the airline stewardess and and such putting ice and packing ice everywhere. And I was going in and out of consciousness and all I heard was, is there a doctor on board? Is there a medical professional on board? And I'm laughing in the back saying, yeah, right here. (laughs) But you know, so there was a gentleman on the plane that was a doctor that was going to his class reunion he happened to be on that flight. And at the end of all of it, and he sat with me the whole time, they made sure I had hydration, he was checking my pulse, all of this. At the end, he said, Kellyanne, you do realize you're burnt out, right? You have to do something, you're burnt out. The problem is, Tom, is that we become very numb. We go through life day after day. We numb down, numb down, numb down, and we somehow we have to stop and we have to say, How am I feeling? How do I feel? Because it's that disconnection, I'm going to get woo-woo here, it's that disconnection from the source, from our source, and understanding where our power really comes from, and really connecting, and understanding that we're going to get walloped if we do not stay present. Because that, that's when our body really manifests and holds on to all that stress. That stress is tough. And it's tough on the body.
1: How do you stay centered? How do you find that alignment? Like, what do you do on a daily basis or weekly Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever your cadence is?
0: Well, for one thing, exercise is very important. What kind of exercise do you do? I do all kind of exercises, different kind. I do limbic type of exercises. So it's exercises that allow my body to breathe and to move. I do yoga. I do dance. I do a lot of dance. Uh, I do weights, I like to really move my body, and then I like to be still. So you have to get into meditation and understanding breathing and just finding that time to absolutely reconnect with yourself because we're losing a connection to ourselves. And if I had really realized this, I had to learn this through going through this myself, so many of the patients that I saw, I I realize now that's what they were, that's what they were going through. They were disconnected. And they stopped feeling. They were just getting through the day and you know getting through this and getting through this and getting through this. And uh, after a while, it comes back and your body gets the ultimate revenge. Your body will get revenge.
1: Why do you call it revenge? Out of curiosity.
0: Yeah, I call it revenge because your body starts giving you signals, and you you can get sick. For me, my revenge was I got extremely exhausted and passed out on a plane and my my body was saying, how many times do we have to tell you? Because your body does give you signs and and signals.
1: So how do people listen for that? What are they listening for? How does it manifest? Like, what was it now looking back leading up to that moment? Because you had a a real sense of presence to be able to say, "Mm, I know where this is going. What was it leading up to that that if it were to happen again that you would catch it much earlier?
0: Oh my gosh. First of all, I... I, when I looked at my eyes and a lot of these these pictures they were sunken in my eyes lost their life My skin had a uh, got very sullen and didn't have vibrance to it mm. And I was proud of myself on things like that in you know, my body I always kept it, you know kind of uh, very fit and like, like a ballerina very smooth and I just started gaining that cortisol tire I had all the signs of exhaustion. And the thing is, is I, I, lost my, I, I lost my lust for life in the same way that I have now or that I had before that. I, because I just, I, and I wasn't even aware. And that's the thing. You, I talk to patients that have been in marriages and, and they, they became really ill staying in relationships that were, that were not serving them. And it wasn't until they got out of the situation, they didn't realize, they didn't realize how bad they felt. They didn't realize how that every day hit of you know leaking your power and leaking your energy that every day hit every day, how it affected them, and it, it really does. And you you just have to stay attuned and just ask yourself how you feel, and you'll notice things like you know gosh, how tired am I? Do I have achy joints? Let I me mean, look at my skin. Let me see my eyes. Do I still feel vibrant? Do I still have you know a lust for life? How do you feel? Like stopping and asking that question is a really important question to ask. Mm. And we don't. We just, we just go through it. We go through it. And, and you know, I, I had to learn. And I would never allow that to happen again. I would never say yes to as many things as I said yes to. I would never allow people that were not well-intended in my life again i would never pummel through work to make other people happy instead of myself mm-hmm. i would never put any other mission besides a mission that will serve me and those you know that i love i would never put that before anything else and a lot of it, a lot of everything in life i'm really finding out it does have to do with the 6 6 mm-hmm. inches between your ears it's a mindset thing you know
1: that's interesting so I'm interested in this concept of reset, which I know you also talk about from a a true just diet and bodily perspective, but Mm -hmm. talk to me about it uh, from a mindset perspective. How do you reset? What are you doing um, when you're dancing? Is there anything conscious going on there or is that just sort of realigning yourself through rhythm and movement? Or in meditation, is it a, um, an awareness, like a mindfulness practice? Like yes. what, what, are, what are you doing mindset-wise?
0: Yeah, it's understanding that we are not just skin and bones. We're atoms and molecules. We have a megahertz. Our cells communicate this unbelievable life that we have inside of us and understanding this big ball of energy and saying, you know what? I want to harness that energy. I want to harness it, and I don't want to leak it. I want to keep it in. That's the understanding. And then when I go into meditation... Or I go into dance or anything like that. I'm visually picturing what I want. I call it my own television show. It's in my mind. It's locked in here and it's strong. And that is one of the biggest differences that I've ever made in my life. Is really pulling things to- towards me and understanding how possible this really is. It has been life changing for me. Life changing. Well,
1: I'm going to need to understand mm-hmm. more about that. So, okay, the process is you're sitting there. You're finding physical stillness.
0: Every day I find physical stillness. It has got to be habitual. Mm-hmm. This will only work if you do it on a regular basis and it can take three, four minutes a day. Sit down, boom, pull up your own TV show. You see you, everything you want, you desire, everything, everything that's for your greater good, everything that, you, that, that is your purpose, you see it as if it's happening. And I picture myself telling someone else all of these amazing things about my physical, my personal life my business life, all of it, as if it is already there. So my body is working and functioning in that modem as if it's already there. And funny enough, how people show up to make and realize all of those things that you're putting in your, in your mind and you're, you're just locking it in your mind. And it, it's not about, well, if I go sit and meditate you know, underneath this tree every day, I'm gonna pull everything towards me. I want you to know, there is not one part of my body that would ever do that, to think that that's all I need to do to, do to make things happen. You have to take action. You have to take action. But there's a, certain, there's a certain thing that happens in your mind, in your cells, in your body, when you really concentrate and you focus on that, and then you go. So there's the metaphysical, and then there's the physical, and you want to be able to capture and really work in both worlds because that's where the magic really happens, really capturing, capturing your, your future by demanding it. Demand it. Demand what you want. Demand it within yourself. And then you go and you get it. And it's, it's funny because I'll go up to people and it's very natural for me now to ask for what I want. Because I'm putting I'm locking it in my body and my physiology I walk like you have to assume the position assume the position of your day And I tell myself this and I start my day like a tiger. I want to be a tiger. That's it What does that mean? So what are the attributes of a tiger? So, Attributes of a tiger is someone who's fearless and someone who's bold because one of the things that I've learned Is I sat on the bed through my my swiss training. I sat on the bed of a lot of people who were dying You know what they had Tom regrets? That is what you hear so often.
1: What are some common ones? That's actually really interesting.
0: It's really interesting. And here's the biggest thing that they they regret. Uh, A lot of people, they were were wealthy, a lot of these people, and they regretted that they did not spend more time with their children. And the other big one was that they regretted that they didn't go for it, that they had at all any fear in going for anything that they wanted.
1: It's interesting that that's successful people saying that um, I think there's something very interesting to take away from that in terms of having success in one area of your life first of all, I think a lot of people think, oh if I had financial success that I would stop and retire and it does not work like that like mm-hmm. being successful answers yesterday's problem it certainly does not answer today or tomorrow's problem. you still have that desperate thirst for meaning and purpose and
0: does not go drive away
1: and to feed your energy yeah it's-
0: doesn't even. I, I think it doesn't even get tainted at all. I think it's in your DNA, and you have to respect and honor your DNA and who you are. A lot of us are very mission based because it's that mission in you that just drives you. You know, I have my missions. I have my anger. I have it in my head, and everything is leading, 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 leading to that. You know, to that overall mission. And it, and I can't imagine any level of success that you know is in front of me that would stop me from wanting to be that person, that tiger. And I'm not saying it's not good to you know, stop, ask yourself, slow down. I'm not saying any of that, but what I'm saying is I honor my DNA. I honor the fact that my friends growing up were reading Cosmo Magazine, and I was reading the Diabetes Journal with Mary Tyler Moore on the cover. <laughs> I honor everything, you know, all of those things. I honor mm. that you know, there's parts of me that are different than a lot of other people in terms of this drive that I have. Mm you know, respecting and honoring that drive, but at the same time, not burning out over that drive.
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting dichotomy for somebody who found themselves pushing so hard, saying yes to everything, that they end up having an episode to still be able to get on the other side of that and say, okay, I've got the awareness now. I know what I'm looking out for. I know this has to be mission-based, but at the same time, I'm not giving up that drive. I still want to be the tiger. I still want to have a level of aggression. I
0: have to be. See, there's certain things I think that are more destructive than anything else. Not honoring who you really are, that is so destructive to the body, everyday living or being something that you really don't want to be, or living in a way that you don't want to live. And I'll tell you that's again, it stems back from the experience of listening to people dying and saying, "I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to express everything. I mean, don't you feel like, you want to live your life and like squeeze every bit of potential that you have. Very much so. And when I see other people, I want to squeeze it out of them. I want to squeeze it out of them. So I feel like my job and my role is to wake people up in that sense. I want to pull people out of the tunnel I've been through. What's the tunnel. I, the tunnel is feeling aimless and dark and lost and not sure. You're not sure and you're numb. I'm telling you. So how
1: do you get them out of that?
0: You make them become aware and reengage with themselves. Then you see someone really on fire. You know that purpose is the key. All the money, all the this and all the that and all the this and that. It's great to have the security. It's great to have that security. Ain't gonna make you happy. You know, it's just not. It's just not. It's not, it's not enough. It's not enough and your body, you know, your body has, uh, has this intelligence. It's very interesting how the body works. And the innate intelligence that it has and the signs and the signals that it gives you throughout your life, just what you're interested in. And, you know, I was told by a college professor years ago, you'll know what you want to do. Where do you go when you go in a bookstore, you know, a library? Where do you, where's your attention? Where do you, where's, and it was always the same for me. It was always those damn health books would drive people crazy going to the beach. They'd flip open their novels. (laughs) And I would sit there with my health stuff. I mean, it was obvious, but you have to pay attention to all these things about yourself. And I am seeing that now more than ever, people really being who they are. It's just not worth it. Just be a tiger. Go for it. Go for whatever. Don't be be embarrassed. Don't be shy. Don't whatever it is. And I just have a belief that, you know, I'm going to say whatever I'm supposed to say, and I'm not going to get wired about it. I'm happy to be here, happy to dispel any information or anything that I can give anyone that's going to help. You just... I'm going to be a tiger about it, you
1: no? Well, speaking of information that will yeah. help, uh, let's come to the gut for a second. Mm. So gut health, obviously, a huge part of what you do, bone broth, healing the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people start sort of with a a gut-based struggle, and then what's the protocol to help them get out of that?
0: Yeah. So I would say most people come in with a gut-based struggle, and we see a lot of autoimmune problems. Mm. We see a lot of people with bloating, constipation, skin rashes, achy joints. These are all signs and symptomologies of somebody who, who likely has a gut that needs healing. And so bone broth, I love because it has this perfect blend of nutrition. So there's Amino acids, which are upbuilding. And you've got some minerals that come out, and we're also deficient in minerals, and so many of the things that go on with us are really because we're lower in minerals. So is there
1: a difference between doing bone broth and just cracking the bone open and eating the marrow? Would you get a different um, nutritional intake?
0: You may get a little different because you're going to get more glycine. And glycine is really helpful for so many things. And we find that it's more hydrating to the body. And But, you know, this, just that bone marrow, I could eat that till the cows come home. The bone marrow is so good for you. I mean, you have to think about it like this, and this is why I love bone broth for gut healing. If you get a sunburn, you reach for aloe vera, you put it on because it soothes and it heals the skin. Well, bone broth, the gelatin cooked collagen, the bone broth... Uh, that does the same thing for your gut. It heals and it seals the gut, and it, it works. So you've got the collagen in there, the collagen, which is the gelatin, which is so good for the gut. You've got minerals in there. You've got great pro- protein in there. You've got amino acids in there. And the research also shows us that one of the things that we know that helps prevent a cold and the duration of a cold are these soups. They're really helpful for the immune system. So, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it and i put it in programs and weight loss programs and things over the years with intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. to help people get even more benefits, compounded benefits, but anything that does, any one thing that does this many things, I love. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we really have some people that are evangelical mm-hmm. about bone broth here on staff. It was a big part of Lisa's recovery. It was super, mm-hmm. super, super impactful for her. Um, is there a big um, nutrient difference between making it yourself from whole bones and um, getting powdered?
0: It's Whole bones is better. Okay, Powdered powder is pretty close. I mean, there's some really good powders on the market right now. Same thing with the frozen broth. That's really easy. There's tons of good frozen broth that you can buy anywhere now. That's really good. And you just put hot water over the bag. It comes in a bag. You put hot water over it, and you put it in the pot, and you can have it very quickly. There's pressure cookers now that you can make bone broth in. You can cook it quicker, but it's that simmering for a long period of time, letting all that good stuff come into into that broth, and it really is very healing for people. I think the word that comes to mind when I think of bone broth is restorative. Is
1: there any gut issue where you don't recommend bone broth? Because, oh, man, the one thing I've learned with what my wife has been through is that healing gut issues is so complicated.
0: People don't know that how complicated it can be. And, well, it's not only complicated, but it takes a long time, and you have to be patient, have to understand that that 20-plus feet of intestines that are going through that, it's a long, narrow tube, and you've got, you know, so many microbes in your body, and you want them to work for you and against you. You've got more microbes, these these bugs in your body than you do actual cells in your body. So you wanna nurture them. It, you wanna nurture that soil, and you wanna really uh, make that soil so that so every 21 days when you have that cellular turnover, you're getting the, as healthy, 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 healthy soil as you possibly can, so you can really heal that gut, and at the same time, sealing everything up. Mm. It does take time, but let me tell you, Tom, when it happens, Bam, the magic happens. Skin looks so much better. Your healing capacity is so much higher. You feel so much more energized. Again, longevity, oh my gosh. I am telling you that is my core anti-aging regimen. That Mm -hmm. is, you have to have foundational beauty. If you decide that you wanna do all the other things, fine, great. I'm not opposed to that. I understand what it feels like to advance in age. I understand what that feels like. And you have to do what makes you happy, but I don't care what you so do. So all
1: that other stuff would be cosmetic, you know, ch- adjustments. Ch- ch- yes, you yes.
0: know, all the stuff, and that's okay. Do all the stuff, but you have to realize foundational beauty is where our real effervescence comes from. Mm-hmm. We know for a fact that we start losing collagen at about age twenty. Mm-hmm. We start losing it little by little by little, and the collagen is like uh, it's like nature's glue. It holds us up. it holds us together and again for longevity for looking young collagen is, it tends to be very helpful so I throw a collagen shake and you know whenever I can I love collagen because it's for me it's it's one of those I, I used to experiment with all these shakes especially during my bodybuilding phase
1: did you competed in bodybuilding
0: oh I was I was fierce
1: figure competitor or I, actual bodybuilder
0: oh I was an actual bodybuilder.
1: Wow. How big oh, yeah. were you? Um,
0: well, I was lean, so my whole thing. Sure, but so, bodybuilding
1: is like a whole nother thing.
0: Oh, I used to go to Arnold Classics every year. I used to like, you know, that would be my masterminds with those people like like the Arnold. What drew you I worked to that? out and like I do everything else. I became the Tiger. So I started working out, and instead of just enjoying working out <laughs> like a normal person, I was like, "How far can I fly?" Because that's the question I always ask myself: How far can I fly? I want to read a book. I want to write a book. Do I write one? No. I have five books with Wiley Publishing, two with Rodell, three with Penguin Random House. I have to see how far. How far can I fly? That's how I live my life. But again, getting back to the reason why I'm sitting in this chair was the the latest book. And so it's how do I do that and be that and not burn out? That's the question.